0: Welcome to my world. I'm your host Kevin Rutherford. It is Tuesday, August 29th. We are here live. It's time to fix some trucks. It's time for the power hour. I've got the team here from Pittsburgh Power, Bruce and Pete and Leroy here to answer our questions. We'll hear from them and then we'll get to your calls and questions. So line them up. Phone lines are open 855-950-3835. If it has anything to do with maintenance. It's fair game. Engines, performance, fuel mileage, modifications, upgrades, troubleshooting, emissions, electronics, you name it, we'll tackle it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and join us. Bruce, looks like you're first up on the board. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Kevin. As always, it's our pleasure to be here.
0: What's exciting in your world this week?
1: Well, I've got a couple things. You know, we've talked in the past about carrying a spare hose and two clamps. The hoses that go from your turbocharger to your, I'm sorry, from the turbocharger to the charge air cooler. And from the charge air cooler back to the intake, they're always the same size. There's four of them. Uh, To buy a hose and two clamps is about
0: $75. (sighs) Well, one of these... Hold on, say. <laughs> <laughs> Bentley wants to get in on the action this morning. Hey, Bentley. Sorry about that. That's all right. We just heard from Bentley. Uh, That's okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. He saw a rabbit or a squirrel. So and Debbie's not getting her nails done, right? So anyway, uh, we won't be joining you next week. We'll be on our way to I don't know, one club we belong to is going on a cruise to uh, from New York up to Nova Scotia. oh so That'll been up be there. fun. Yeah. So anyway, I got a call on Friday and he's one of the listeners and he said, my turbo blew. I'm at my marker 122 on the Pennsylvania Turnpike heading west. So I want to tow it in while well, it's a pack car. And this is the fellow that said you he could hear bearing going bad in the turbo and i said there really aren't bearings in the turbo there's brass sleeves summer aluminum you cannot hear them when they're going bad and they usually don't go bad usually it's a thrust washer that'll go bad but i said how many fun boosts you have he said do you think i can nurse it into your shop now here it is it's friday the shop's (laughs) about two weeks These don't happen on Mondays and Tuesdays, right? Of course, right. So I said, does it make any boost? No, my boost gauge is showing zero. So it's great that he had a boost gauge. So we knew that. So he pulled the truck over. I said, tilt the hood. Let's look at the turbo. Is it there? Is it physically there? No tools. He doesn't have any tools. Let's look at the elbow coming off the turbo. Makes a ninety degree turn, then there's a hose and two clamps, and then your pipe, and then another hose and two clamps onto the charge air cooler. The hose was blown off the charge air cooler. Uh, what, an clamp,
0: what an easy fix too. What an easy yeah. fix if you have the stuff you need. So you need a deep well,
1: seven socket, three eighths drive along with the ratchet. Well let's just talk tools. Or, you know, a lot of people now are making that ratchet wrench. I'm sure you're familiar oh, with yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you can buy a whole set for right. 80 or or $100. But if you don't have any tools and you go to Home Depot, I think it's Home Depot that sells that Craftsman. It's a red toolbox. They'll have specials uh, 198, reduced to 140, and that has a lot of the basic tools, and it's in a little suitcase. That's what I carry in the pickup trucks.
0: Yeah. Bruce, about the only tools and, I've ever had most of my life were craftsmen. That's just what I grew up with. It's what my dad always had. It, it was yeah. Sears for a long time. Right, right.
1: So in the meantime, I had them call Herring Motors out of Somerset because they're much closer than we are, and they went out and fixed it. And his bill was $420, which was very reasonable. Yeah, He's on his way, but he probably lost three to four hours. And if he would have had that hose and clamps, and we've talked about this, carry that hose and clamps, because we get this call every couple weeks.
0: Yeah, that's, um, I didn't realize that was happening that much, but that that is something that's easy to carry the stuff with you to fix it.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. If the hose keeps slipping off the charge air cooler or one of the connectors where the hose goes on, spray it with brake clean. Spray the hose with brake clean. That makes it tacky. Yes. See, the brake clean on the, on the aluminum houses will clean it, and then the brake clean on the hose makes it
0: tacky. And, and if then you, you put it on and you put the clamp on. Sometimes when those hoses are hard, hard to get on and a lot of times they are, if you do it quick enough with the brake clean, it acts like a lubricant for a little bit, a couple seconds, if you can get it on there, and then it starts to get tacky. But it can actually help you get it on sometimes.
1: And if the hose is long enough over the aluminum connector, you can put two clamps on each end, and a lot of trucks have two clamps on each end. Good point. Another thing I heard that works is cheap hairspray. It's oh, cheaper than that yeah. because it's like glue. It's just like glue, yeah. Huh? Yeah. Like Like glue. So, that's one thing. We have a client, a pretty interesting guy, Mike McWilliams. He's from Bakersfield, California. He's got a peak with a 180 inch bunk. And three weeks ago, I was crossing the Bay Bridge on 50, heading out to Delaware, and as I was getting off onto Kent Island, I saw him going onto the bridge, and I just caught it out of the corner of my eye. I and mean, the 180 inch bunk, and it's got a Big Eagle or something painted on the side, or an Amer- no, I think it's an American flag. <laughs> this guy's a pretty interesting fellow. Uh, he buys a lot of used army equipment, bulldozers and uh, cranes, and Tinkers with them in his barn behind his house, and uh, sometimes he puts them to work. And I said, well, "What makes you buy that?" He said, "Well, I don't know, but it's in our blood. We just can't leave things alone." <laughs> <laughs> Pretty yeah. interesting saying, right? Yep, yeah, it sure is. <laughs> it's in our blood. We can't yeah. leave things alone. can't leave it alone. And uh, I've been told that. uh, the ex-wife used to say, "Why can't you just leave anything alone?" I said, well, "I have to make it so it satisfies me." Right, right. That's just doesn't have to satisfy other people. It has to satisfy you, right? Yeah. yeah. So everybody's truck is different, and everyone's different. And sometimes you you know, it's not one turbo fits all or one one ECM setting fits everyone because everyone's different and everybody needs something different and everybody tows something different and they're in different parts of the country and they drive differently. So everything's different, but <clears throat> he took, he's got an X15 2350 and we have it programmed and he took, I think he took 336 gears out and he put two twenty eights in. Oh, And I said, "Will that fit in your housing. He said, no, I had to buy new housing. So the whole conversion right. was $9,000. So, with 228, 13-speed. Let me give you some of his numbers. He sent me pictures. What engine is this? So, X15. Okay. So, at 1,255 RPM, He's right at 65 miles an hour, which is perfect. Yeah. And I'm assuming the tires are low pro (laughs) 22.5. Mike, if I'm wrong, please call in and tell me. So then he put it in 12th gear. And his instant readout for a fuel mileage is showing eight. Now he pulls a step deck with a roll tarp. And at 78 miles an hour, he's at... Thirteen hundred, and then he puts it into thirteen. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and then, <laughs> then the numbers he's get
1: weird. He's an interesting guy. Yeah, the numbers right? get weird. No, he's still showing seventy-eight, but he's right at just shy of eleven hundred. Ooh. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's an uh, interesting setup there. How does how does he like that truck running at eleven hundred?
1: I don't know if he runs it at all. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I, don't yeah, I don't know if he drives it at okay. 78. He, yeah, he's that's a pretty fast. sharp guy. He yeah. probably drives it at 65 at uh,
0: 1255. That would be just about ideal. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, the and only... Next week, I want to bring it... The only argument ahead. you might be able to make here uh, is that he went so high on the gear ratio or low on the number, that he's kind of wasting the transmission. Maybe we didn't need to go that high and we would have had a little more usable top end there. But either way, he's got a good gear to cruise in. No, but it's perfect 65 miles an hour at 12.55 RPM. And then he does does have that gear to go into the 70 mile an hour range somewhat efficiently if he wants to. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you can see it. And what happens if you're like me and you're coming, you're on I-70 coming down off those plateaus in Utah and you're going downhill for 18 miles and you just want to let her cruise at 85 or 90 and you put her in 13th gear. Yeah. It's three miles. Yeah. Right? if you're not heavy, you're not putting much strain on your tires. And yep. and I always find there's not much traffic coming down off those plateaus. There you go. You know, it was interesting being, being, uh, Pittsburgh and you're in school and you, in geography class, you study about plateaus, but until you actually drive up the side of one, and some of them I saw were 60 miles across the top and then 18 miles down the other side. Wow. And it was kind of interesting. Yeah. So I'm sure you've seen that on I-70 in Utah, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. So, the other thing, next week I want to bring on a fellow by the name of Jeff. He owns a company called Smooth, S-M-O-O-V-E. He makes waxes, and he makes ceramic coat coatings, and he also makes polymer waxes. And he started out in detailing boats, and he's uh, also a boat broker. He's on Kent Island. Maryland. And I ran into them three years ago at a boat show. I bought some of this product and I didn't try it until last week. And I was blown away by the cleaner wax and you hardly feel any of the cleaner grit in it. And it just took all the marks off this white paint that I was trying to wash off and then I put his polymer on it and I was, I was shocked at how smooth it was. And then I see where he gets his name smooth smooth, and um, yeah. Interesting guy to talk to and I'm going to bring him on the show and let him talk about detailing. And, and I, I said one thing to him, I said, if we have new paint or a new vehicle, why a cleaner wax? He said, well, you know, if water lands on your windshield and you don't dry it off, what do you see yeah. after it dries? See the, the you see the leftovers, the dirt, whatever was in the you water. You the, right. the, the ring of the minerals. Yep. He said, the reason you don't see that on light colors. Now, I do see that on my dark reds on my pickups. He said, because it's white. Right. He said, you need the cleaner wax to take that off.
0: Yeah, we get a lot of environmental contaminants on the paint pretty quickly. I mean, so it's new paint. It's fine for a while. Now, the one thing I'm, um, the polymer. So you said he had a ceramic product and a polymer. I've played around with the ceramics, and I'm pretty impressed with them. What's the polymer? What's the idea behind that? Same idea?
1: It's the polymers is what they want on a lot of... uh, a lot of new finishes.
0: Okay. So, Bruce, you and I go way, way way back with that stuff. We've talked about it in the past. I I learned how to paint cars when I was 15 from my brother-in-law and made an awful lot of money painting cars at home uh, when I was young. In fact, that's how I opened the gym when I was um, 19. The money I had was the money I made from painting cars back then. So we go back to the buffing and the pink fill and glaze and all of those. It was a lot of steps. Um, I was painting almost 100% lacquer back then. So you wet sand it, you buff it, you fill it, you wet sand it, you buff it. I mean, it was a long process, but you could get a beautiful finish when you were done. Um, today, I, I hadn't played around with any of that stuff for a long time. So the Range Rover, uh, you know, it was five years old. Um, paint, well, actually, it was four last year when I did it. It needed some work. So I went out and looked, and I had played around with the clay bars once before, so I grabbed those in the ceramic. And I'll tell you, it, it's not that hard to go over the whole car with the clay bar, hit it with the ceramic, and the thing looks like new. And it just wasn't that much work at all. Yeah, I've never tried a clay bar, but Pete has used the clay bar. They're incredible. It's the yeah. most. It's the weirdest and, you thing know, you've I- ever seen. You, you just talked about Bruce. You know, you feel <laughs> the grit in the cleaners, and the more grit there is, the more drag there when you're doing it. Um, this clay bar is so weird because you use it wet, and it just slides so easy across the surface. You're thinking that can't be doing anything, and it it is. It, it's just a, it's a weird process.
1: Interesting. Well, we'll let Pete talk about his experience with the clay bar, and I'm going to have to try it because
0: I get a lot of sap. Oh, it takes that stuff right off. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff it just takes right off the surface. You don't even feel it. It it slides so easy. You're thinking, I'm not doing anything. I've Mm -hmm. done a clay bar down to the point where you have to buff it to bring the finish back. Mm -hmm. It's just like like using a really fine sandpaper. Mm Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, back in my late teens and early 20s, I also painted and everything was lacquer and it was always Corvettes. Yeah. And that's how I made the money to have a race car. Yeah. My day job was in transportation. My night job was a body shop and, and a race car shop. And so you'd come home from work. And then Friday, you know, I lived with my parents. So I was 25, had a beautiful shop, wonderful parents and... Friday night after dinner, I would go down to the garage, and sometimes I'd be working and working, and next thing you know, the sun was coming up. <laughs> yep. I said, oh my, it's 5.30, o'clock in the morning, and I didn't go to bed, yeah. Yeah. so you hurry up get out of the coveralls and take a shower and go to bed for four hours and you're back in that garage. And that's why I bought a boat was to get me out of the garage and let me spend a little time relaxing in the Allegheny river. There you go. But um, I have one other thing I want to say, not related to trucking, but the last time I was down around Norfolk, Virginia, I counted 22 freighters that were empty sitting, waiting to take raw materials away from the U.S. to foreign countries. And uh, on Sunday by the Bay Bridge in Annapolis, Maryland, there were 14 freighters, usually four or five. There were 14, all empty, all from foreign countries, all taking our natural resources away from our country and into foreign countries. And I just look at that as we're depleting the U.S., and shipping all of this natural stuff across the pond. And I don't think it's right. I think we need to keep our own natural resources and use it for our own manufacturing and take care of our own country.
0: So, Bruce, if you want to read a really good book about this topic or listen to it when you're driving, it's called the end of the world is just the beginning. And he talks about this topic that we've created this incredibly <laughs> complicated world economy where we ship stuff back and forth all over the world constantly. We we take a raw material from one country, we ship it to another country, they do one process to it, we send it to another country, they use it to make something, that stuff gets sent all over. the. It is incredibly complicated. And the author's claim is that because of I'll get really deep into this, but because of world populations actually shrinking, we're not a lot of countries aren't having enough babies. China restricts it. You know, the, the trend in most countries is kids, people aren't having babies anymore. And his contention is that we are running out of people and we will not be able to support this giant worldwide economy where we're shipping things all over the place that that our economies are going to start to move local again and if that were to happen he outlines you know a lot of the countries in the world and who would be in the best shape guess which country in the world would if this were to happen if we were to go back to being you know much more of a local economy um guess what country in the world is best situated to handle that U.S.? Yep, absolutely. They laid it all out. Our natural resources, um, our proximity to everybody else in the world. It makes it very hard for them to try to come and attack us on our own shores. They went through the whole thing. And, and they said, you know, countries like North America would become the local economy, not just the U.S. It would be Canada, the U.S., and Mexico because we don't have to ship across water. And everything we didn't have... Canada or Mexico did. So North America really became um, the place that would benefit the most from a system like this if it were to happen.
1: I see that. I agree. Yeah, it's
0: a really interesting book.
1: Okay, I will
0: pick that up. All right, I'm going to go back to The End of the World is just the beginning. Peter Zeehan is the author. Peter Zeehan. And he he also covers a lot on, on how there's no way we could get away from our fossil fuel economy, and it's stupid to try. This whole green push to electric is a really, really bad idea, and he outlines all the reasons why. Okay. All right, I'm going to go back to your first point on hoses and clamps and being prepared. You'll probably remember this. When I left your shop last year, after getting all, we did a ton of work on the, uh, the air system, the boot. I mean, I had leaks everywhere. Um, and one of the reasons I did, we've never tested that coach. I've never bothered to test it, even though we talk about it all the time, um, for a couple reasons. One, Picking up a couple tenths of a mile per gallon isn't going to make a big difference in my world, and two, we saw how hard it was to do that test. Um, let me bring uh Leroy in real quick because I think he'll remember um, Leroy, are you there was, was that uh, you there yeah, was that a little bit of a challenge just trying to test the system on that thing. Yeah. A little challenge, yeah. I mean, it's buried in the back of a bus, so a lot of, a lot of, as expected. Yeah, a lot of crawling around back there, trying to find access. Where can you go to pressurize it? So we, we put a lot of time into it. We found a lot of leaks. I had leaks everywhere. Oh, I was just, I was. Oh, ex- yeah. So then, Bruce, remember it was a Friday. I left your shop thinking we had it all taken care of <laughs> and I got to the first good hill and I was passing everybody with a big smile on my face. Cause I had all kinds of horsepower and I heard a big bang and then the truck just started going slower and slower <laughs> and I had to pull over and I just, I started digging into it and I found leaks everywhere. Thought we had them all fixed, replaced the charger cooler. I mean, I was in the shop for a week. Lee really remembers that too. He helped me a lot on that one thinking, all right, I've got this. I didn't get onto the interstate and I blew a hose off that thing again. So when I went back there and looked at it, there were several problems with this. It was the last connection I put back together and it was the hardest to get the hose on. You couldn't reach anything. I was like standing on my head trying to get this thing on. So then I used some lubricant to get it on because it was, I just could not get it. I tried and tried. So I finally get it on, but now it's got lubricant on, so it's a little slippery. And I can't really get two clamps on it, and I can't get the clamp as tight as I want it, and it just won't stay on. And I'm on the side of the road again, uh, and I called you, and you said, try the brake clean thing, which, of course, I had brake clean, so that was a good step. I have a box full of all kinds of different clamps. That's like the, the MacGyver box. You can do a lot with clamps. So one of the problems with this one was... After it came out of this connection, there was a 90 degree bend and then that whole assembly was just, there was like two and a half, three feet of straight pipe, then the 90 degree elbow, then another two feet of pipe and there was no support for it. It wasn't attached to anything. So when when the boost hit that 90 degree turn, it would pull that whole assembly right off that connection. So I got looking at it and I thought, I'm never going to keep this on unless I can build some sort of brace on that. And I, I really couldn't build a brace. But what I was able to do was put clamps, not on the boots, but on the, the hoses, but two clamps. And then I made two other clamps that connected all those together and held it all on. And it, it's still like that. I just left it like that. It works. Mm-hmm. It's ugly. Yeah, it's really ugly. I got all time I was Nine, taking clamps apart and then building new clamps with clamp pieces. And but I finally got it all together and it held really well. Because to show you how much
1: pressure is in a 90 degree. <sighs> a bend when yeah, something is flowing through it, whether it's liquid, whether it's exhaust or whether it's air.
0: Yeah, I kept looking at that, go, why won't this clamp stay on? And then it finally dawned on me, it's hitting that 90, and there's nothing to stop it. That's, that's just constant mm-hmm. pressure pulling that clamp off. Mm-hmm. So it does pay to have those tools and clamps and boxes of stuff. It does. Yeah. That would have been an expensive tow or repair on the side of the road if I would have had to call somebody. If they could have done it. Yeah, right. Right. They would have wanted to tow it in. <laughs> then it gets really expensive. That's right. Yeah. That's so, right. all right, Leroy, you're already up there. Jump a... in. Yes. Yeah,
2: so, I mean, it's been a busy week for us. Um, not with a lot of trucks, but just the the difficulty of problems have made them difficult or makes us busy. Um, we had one that has been here for a little bit, and it's for a death consumption issue. And I guess for a little bit of context, the engine controller makes sure that the outlet NOx is at an appropriate level, which means it's really low. And there's two ways for an an after-treatment engine system to reduce NOx. It's either through the use of EGR or through the use of DEF. So you have to analyze those two systems separately, even though they work in conjunction. So this guy was getting like 70, 80 miles per gallon on this ISX, and... We've done a bunch of research and testing analysis on the data that we're seeing from the SCR. Like we're doing a DEF quantity test, which means we take the DEF injector out. We put it into a graduated cylinder. We override the pump and the injector and see how much fluid it puts out in three minutes. And then we can calculate um, if it's spraying the appropriate amount. So we did that test. That's showing up good. Everything's going well. The SCR looks like it is converting appropriately. It comes up to temperature as it should. We've looked for buildup in the decomp tube. In the SCR, there's no buildup. So then from there, the only thing really to look at is the EGR system, being that there's a, that's the two ways to do it. So we did some testing on that. And I noticed, and it's weird that it doesn't throw a check engine light for that. You would think an X15 for as sensitive as they are for throwing check engine lights you'd think that it would have thrown this code. So you could see the EGR valve come open, you could watch that data, and then you would expect to see some sort of shift in the sensors that detect flow, indicating that the valve is open. When you saw the valve open 50, 60, 70% open, I'm seeing a small change in flow. It's not like there's no flow, but it's just a small amount of flow. And to make, a, I guess, a pretty long story short, that means that the sensor's either reading wrong the wiring is wrong ecm has an issue or there's some sort of issue physically with the egr cooler egr valve venturi piece something like that so like i always advocate for if you have any sort of issues like that um just do the sort of easiest things first and then just start doing visual inspections and i mean it came up right across the (laughs) came up pretty quick it was pretty apparent what the problem was once we started to tear the EGR system apart, it looks like there's this caked soot everywhere um, from what I assume is sort of coolant and soot mixing. Uh, if anyone's ever seen that, it just makes a big cake Ooh. mess of just just sticky. It's It's a nightmare in there. And I said, okay, well, we see this cake mix at the EGR temp sensor, which is pretty far down the line. And now it has essentially... Poisoned, as I would say, the crossover tube, it's in the intake now, it's in the head, and the valves. I mean, this sticky cake mixture is everywhere. And from here, you just have to keep going backwards until you find where it's coming from. For instance, if it was fuel or coolant or something or oil, you would see it coming out of the manifold right before the EGR cooler. So on an ISX and most EGR system, you have the exhaust that comes out of the head. It goes into the manifold. And then from the manifold, it can either go through the turbo or it goes through the EGR cooler. This is the first place it goes. The EGR cooler is meant to take the exhaust gas at you know a high temperature of like a thousand degrees and then cool it down to something around two hundred degrees or so. You should be able to see that. And that way you can that was what I was I saying you can start to pinpoint where the issue is coming from. So we worked from the EGR temp sensor backwards through the egr valve still found the cake material in the egr valve on both the inlet and the outlet go to the outlet of the egr cooler it's still there the inlet of the egr cooler looks fine just dry built up soot sort of the uh, normal amount of soot you would see built up in an exhaust pipe or something so that pretty much just indicates that the egr cooler is bad yes uh we have some sort of internal leak but i guess the moral of the story was it was nice to be able to convert what we can see across the data stream, which really anybody can. I mean, it's not just us. I mean, as even as a driver, as you learn to look for things, you could be able to find issues like this. Um, There's no magic software or anything like that that we use. We're just looking at numbers across the the data stream. And it was nice to say, okay, I see this. It looks like we have some sort of issue with low flow. Let's check the easy stuff first. And then it turns out, yeah, it is an EGR cooler, so that um, those are always good days at work when which you find what you expect to find. I would say that uh, that makes a good day at work.
0: There you go. I like that. It's like yeah. sleuthing. It's like a what? Sleuthing. Sleuthing.
2: Detective. Oh, that's outside of my my <laughs>
0: vocabulary. <laughs> You're a sleuth. You're, You're a 1960s. super sleuth.
2: I'm an engine sleuth. I yes, suppose. Yes, that's I guess right. Christie move. Hey. So yeah, there's that. And then there's the uh, we're doing another engine vibration analysis. Uh, nothing quite anything yet. No data on that yet. So we're still working that problem.
0: Got it. All right. More hey, But yeah, more sleuthing. Before we go on, listen to this. This sounds like a fun day. I just got a, uh, I just got an email from Josh I'm talking about a truck rodeo in northern Quebec. Bruce, have you ever heard of that one?
3: Yeah, we did that years ago, Bruce and I.
0: Did you? So here's one the one in the race. Yeah. Yeah,
3: it it Notre Dame de North. It, yeah. it, it was a lot of fun. I mean, great people. It was a big party. Everyone was in a good mood, enjoying themselves. They had a carnival-type atmosphere going on. At we had the truck pulls, and, and then we had some vendors set up. We set up as a vendor uh, with one of our remote tuners. At, well, it wasn't a remote tuner, it was a it to Power boxes years ago, that we did the uh, we shared a booth with. It was a really good time. The great it, people up there. Yeah, he sent and me. He uh, literally shut down. Do
0: that. He sent me a thing about it. it. Looks, it does look like a lot of fun. They they drag race loaded lumber trailers up a hill at a hundred and thirty nine thousand pounds. That sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. The years ago, the Peter built with the cat. It would yank
1: the left front wheel about 36 inches into the air, <laughs> ran two power boxes, our old power boxes that we used to have. Yeah. it ran, ran two of those. By the way, I found a guy that has a brand new power box still in the box for a 60 series Detroit. Wow. For a D-Deck 4. <laughs> wow. So, just in case anyone's interested. Yeah. And it's out in the West Coast. He's a hay hauler, but, uh, yeah, two pie boxes. And whenever the young man that was a mechanic told us about that, I said, you can't do that. He said, Oh yes, I can. And I'm coming to your place tomorrow and I'm going to show you how <laughs> I said, isn't that amazing? We designed the product and the guy shows us how to, how to make two of them work in, uh, would it be parallel or sequential? They like, One adds to the other. Uh, sequential. Sequential. Okay. So, yeah, I think on that particular truck, they had to rebuild the engine every pool or every race. Wow. I think. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, and now, now, you know, some of these uh, cats are up in the 3000 horsepower doing truck pulling. Whew. That's a lot of power. It is. Yeah. Tremendous amount. Yeah, it is. Wow. All right, Pete. I'll I'll say, hey, uh, I just got a text from Jackie Warmly. Jackie
0: Jackie Warmly still
1: has her (laughs) boat. Oh, okay. She still has the Bose seat, and it still works.
0: And she went and bought another one. She found one on, I think it was eBay or somewhere, and she went and bought another one, and it wouldn't work, wouldn't boot up right. That thing's got crazy complicated electronics on it. Um, But she found that there is still a company working with these. I think it's on. It's it's been sold twice now, but she found the company. She actually sent them the SD card, and they're working with her to get this thing going.
1: I was going to
0: say, just bring it to Leroy. Yeah, I, I, that would probably work too, Leroy. You'd have fun working on one of those, wouldn't you? I have fun working on everything. Figured, what are you talking about? This is a pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty sophisticated piece of technology. You you know how it works, <laughs> right? Awesome. I think I've explained it to you.
1: Yeah, I think last week we talked about it. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty... Hey, Kevin, speaking of women in trucking, there's not too many of Jackie warmly, are there?
0: Jackie's one of a kind. She is. Not, not even just she for a is woman. One of a kind. I mean, Jackie's just one of a kind yeah. as an owner operator. There's, there's mm-hmm. an awful that lot day, of men that day... who could learn a lot about being a good owner operator from Jackie. That day
1: at one of the truck shows, and you had a booth, and we were right around the corner from our booth, and we were all standing there, and she said, I could teach a lot of men how to oh, make she... money with their truck. <laughs> she's right, too. She <laughs> and I never, never forget that statement. Yeah, yeah. I never she's... forgot the first time I looked inside her Freightliner. I mean, you couldn't find a speck of dust. No, no, it is, yeah. And and Star, the lady that we work with, her Freightliner is the same way. There is not a speck of dust in that truck.
0: Jackie was also one of the first hey, people I know to put an OPS on the truck and still continue to do oil changes every 15 or 20. I forget what her number was, but she never stopped doing those and oil changes. And she wanted to bypass the just still running now. Off, and it's still beautiful. She said the paint's starting to fade a little bit, which I could see. And it was a beautiful mm-hmm. paint job truck and trailer, but uh, it, it is in such good and condition. Not only is that
1: truck still running, but that's twelve sevens up in seven hundred and something horsepower. <laughs> you know that's the truck that she was drag racing her dad when he was on his fifteen hundred Kawasaki motorcycle and he couldn't keep up there. <laughs> so that was one that's of right. her other stories. Yeah, and let me let me say something about Star, the first time star came in our shop. She had about two inches of bracelets on both wrists she had a ring on every finger she had dark hair with a red streak through the middle she's in was in her 50s (laughs) red streak right through the middle finger nails all done up and i'm standing there and i'm looking at this lady and she starts talking about her truck i said you don't own a truck (laughs) she said i sure do and that's it right outside I said, no way that you own a truck. <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong, and it it just it just proves in this industry you never know who you're going to meet. That's right. You never know what they're capable of, what they can do, what they're worth. You just don't know. It's such a fascinating industry, with such a uh, group of interesting people. Yeah.
0: yeah it Sure. Oh, is. You know
1: that's that's why people can't retire. I mean, I yeah. mean. God, you get uh, oh, Jackie just said fifty four pound of boost. I mean, <laughs> fifty four pound of out of a series stock 60. on that truck was thirty, right? Yeah, out of a series sixty, yeah. and it never broke. She never broke I and that she didn't take. Uh, it, she didn't take the right lane very often either, going uphill.
0: You know, I, I'm going to say this again. I've said it so many times over the years. You know, we we look at a twelve liter cat and we think ah. That's a little engine. That's a vocational engine. This is the same size—the twelve six or the, the twelve seven. The Detroit has always been a twelve liter engine. We never thought of it as a small engine, though. That's mm-hmm. okay. right. Maybe because put it's put got such box, big Amy, performance. Used to put a power box
1: on a twelve on a twelve liter cat with the manifold and. turbo damper and balancer and running on fire level three. And they just ran with 550
0: horsepower trucks all day long. And that's never a failure. Hell of a setup. And I don't know why there wasn't more of those on the road. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That was a good, you know what else I noticed on Facebook? A lot owner operators
1: will pull into a truck stop and see a friend they haven't seen for 20, 25 years They go in and have lunch with them and they, Post the pictures, and what other industry is there like that?
0: You know why? You know know why truck drivers are interesting, and they really are. A lot of them really are. Um, I kind of discovered this the first time we went out on the road in the coach, and you probably experienced this as well. You did the same thing, you know. You get into RV parks because if you're out on the road, you're going to spend some time in RV parks. We spend quite a bit of time there, and you start to notice some things. I noticed it right away. People are really in a good mood. They're happy a lot happier than any place else I would go. And it dawned on me, well, duh, of course they're happy. Everybody in this RV park is either on vacation or retired. But then I started noticing the people I meet in these RV parks are really interesting. We have a lot of stuff to talk about. Well, it's because just like truck drivers, you travel all over the country. Everybody's got stories and you start to recognize the stories, the places. Oh, yeah, I was there. I remember that. It, it, you can go on and on and on for days with all the stories with people who do this much traveling.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You think about, you know, yeah, I, we're a lot I, of, I said my, mm-hmm. one of my first jobs out of the Army I talked about was, you know, repairing those ancient knitting machines in that factory. And I lasted all of two weeks, I think. It made me insane. You go to the same break room with the same people at the same time every day. And after a while, what the hell is there to talk about? Because all everybody did the night before was go home, watch TV and come back to work the next day. But you think about what happens if I run into somebody on the road at a truck stop and we see each other a couple days later. Think of all the things we've done during that time. Just a couple days, you already have stories. There's always something going on on the road. Did you see I talked about you it yesterday where, uh, we over the weekend we ended up with three tractor trailer setups in the Columbia River three separate incidents We had one go off of a bridge I don't know how they any of them occurred there wasn't much explanation one of them went off a bridge crossing from Oregon over to Washington the whole thing's in the drink down at the bottom That happened on Friday or Saturday, I think. And then later in the weekend, Saturday or Sunday, two sets of doubles went off of 84 into the river. Two separate incidents, though. When I first saw the pictures, I thought, okay, the two sets of doubles got tangled up and they all went into the river together. But that wasn't the case. Two separate incidents. Three over a weekend. That's just bizarre. All three people drowned? I don't know. I de- I got to go back and look today to see if there's any updates on these stories because there was, like, no details over the weekend. No, one guy did swim to shore. I do remember that. The guy that went off the bridge actually swam to shore, and he's fine. I don't know about the other two. Wow.
1: Well, he went off the bridge, and he made—was it a tall bridge? Uh
0: <sighs> You know, I think it is a fair—now, it's one of those bridges, because we have a lot of, you know, boat traffic on the river. It starts kind of low and then has the big arch in the middle. Uh, so I don't know where he went mm-hmm. off. or Again, there's just not many details over the weekend. So it's possible he could have been close You're to shore. He could have ditch. been, you know, lower to the yeah. water. It, 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 when looking at that bridge, I, I know which bridge it was. If he went off at the center, I don't think he would have survived. So I think he must have went off near one of the two ends. When I'm crossing this Bay Bridge across the Chesapeake Bay,
1: it's four 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 and a half miles across the main part of the bay, but the whole bridge is like six miles. And when you're in a pickup truck, I haven't crossed it in a semi, but uh, you're looking at this guardrail and you're thinking, would that hold a semi? And it's 300 and some feet tall because of the freighters that go under it. And you just wonder, what would hold a semi-truck there, railing? And a good friend of mine was one of the uh, civil engineers on building the second, the newer Bay Bridge. I'm going to have to talk to him. We we ride motorcycles and boat and, uh, together. And uh, I'm going to talk to him to see what that railing is rated for. What we'll would hold a semi at 55 or 60 miles an hour? Yeah. All right. hey, back to uh, the people you meet on the road, you know, a lot of airplane pilots, so they had to retire at well, what was it, 60 or 62 and I think they've upped that a little bit but uh, they're so used to moving, a lot of those people end up in RVs and motorhomes and uh, i found a lot of people that ran heavy equipment because they were used to being outside and even though they're not moving far they're still moving <laughs> and the different uh when i'd be tuning up a dodge with the cummins in back in the late 90s in an rv show and you put up a hood uh you'd get six eight ten guys coming around and some guys were in hvac some were electrical contractors some were plumbing and it was incredible when we'd have a problem with it, whether it was a motorhome or a truck what people would come up with and gauges and parts and it was it was a lot of fun yeah, so, yeah, no doubt. Just just like what trucking used to be back when you and I got into it. You know, if a guy was broke down on the side of the road, people stopped to help. Yep.
0: You know, Bruce, I've got interesting- but
1: I, I. Oh, go ahead. I did want to say about uh, Dean Cross and Laburn Cross... Uh, they they have beautiful trucks and they post them on Facebook quite often and uh, like Dean comes out of a truck washer he washes it in his own shop at home in Seward Nebraska he's one of our catalysts and remote tomb dealers and uh, you always kind of know where he's going and when he runs into old friends and Laverne Cross has a Shop in Middle Middlebury, his own personal shop, but he calls it the Middlebury Truck Stop. And uh, friends always stop by with their trucks, and uh, it's it's kind of neat. It's just like a bunch of uh, young people with their hot rods, and that's what this whole industry is like, you know. And, and uh, I love it when people get together and uh, hang out together, and just like with our owner-operator snowmobile conference, it's so neat because afterwards and after dinner and a drink or two and we talk trucks, we talk snowmobiles and, uh, it's a, it's a pleasure. Yes, so the camaraderie indeed. in this industry is second to none. Well, yeah. See. Mike Thompson just sent me. Oh, Mike Thompson said cross the Bay bridge last night. GPS said it was 220 feet high. Okay. Um, Mike was
0: again former <laughs> airplane pilot. That's right. You know? Yeah, you know Bruce. I've I got thought
1: it was higher than 220 feet. I thought it had to. Okay, yeah. that's all right. Whether it's 220 or 300, if you go off, it's a long way down.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah, hey, you know I've got an email here. I just you- just happened to open up, and it kind of you know what you're talking about here. uh, And he sent me an article along with it. It looks like it might be a really interesting article. I don't have time to read it right now, but it's about uh, motor oil engineering test data. And he starts off talking about the, uh, you know, a Chevy big block of 540 being the rat motor and the Chevy small block being the mouse motor. And I mean, it looks like, you know, it was written by a real gearhead. So I'm looking forward to reading that. But um, it, it goes on to say, um, I like your tribe so much that I've listened to every recorded word since spring of 2022, and most evenings on Sirius since 2018. Um, and he he claims he's a gearhead, and but he's new into the industry; just came in in 2018. And it it this is what really got me about the article. You'll relate to this, Bruce. Um, he says I consider myself a greenhorn in the business. And I ask a lot of questions of mechanics and my bosses about, you know, efficiency or upgrading or, or mechanic, and he says he just gets this deer in the headlight look from everybody. Uh, you, we've all experienced this. Like you said, Bruce, we we can't help ourselves. We try to improve everything we come across. And a lot of people just don't understand that. And it sounds like that's what he's running into. He loves all the mechanical shows.
1: There you go. Yeah, that's right.
0: He just uh, just doesn't understand when he asks people about, you know, the mechanical side of things and maybe improving or he, he just, nobody responds. And you can see that in this industry. I, I've said before, the last thing you should ever do is pull into some random truck garage and ask them to help you with fuel efficiency. You will absolutely get the deer in the headlight looks then. They have no clue.
1: Yeah, I'm sure a lot of them are, uh, you know, there's a lot of good mechanics, but they're, you know, whether they're putting brakes on and working on suspensions and clutches and things like that, but uh, not a lot of people that specialize in the fine-tuning of right. the semis. Right. Yep,
0: exactly. All right, Pete, it's time we hear from you. Wake up. Oh, uh,
3: I'm up. I'm you up. <laughs> I was just going to go over what was in his shop today. We still have one Leroy spoke about with the EGR cooler that um, uh, came with some issues and turned out to be a cooler, which at this point, as bad as it is, it might be a good idea to do a diesel force uh, flush on this one to get it clean once we put the EGR cooler in it. Because it is really uh, one of the techs was cleaning up some of the components. And it's just, it's gooey and it's sticky and it's, it's almost like tar.
2: Yeah, it really is. It's, it's disgusting. And that's like going to stick to all the sensors. They're all going to read poorly. It's just, it's a real mess now. One little leak makes a big mess.
3: So we got that in the shop. We got the X15 that came in for a rebuild. Finally got parts in here yesterday for it, waiting for the cylinder kits to come in. Those came in. couple big cam steel. The C12 with the vibration issue that's going to be uh, the candidate for the Pico scope.
2: Yeah, we've been working on that. We see a big third order engine vibration so some sort of either poor combustion event crankshaft damper clutch something like that is what we're seeing so
3: far and the last is a deck four with a throttle a uh, come and go throttle issue we're working on so the shop's full shop's busy again
0: all right well, that's good you, to
3: hear. you definitely use more more, more and more techs
0: <laughs> yeah In both yeah good luck trying to find either one yeah
3: Right for sure.
0: Yeah, you know Bruce. uh, No doubt of
3: it. No, we're we're, we're lucky we got a good crew we we have right now. Yeah,
0: that's good. That's really good. You know Bruce. Yeah, I was talking about that book earlier. The end of the world is just the beginning. The idea being we're just running out of people to support this massive economy we've created. And here's two examples of it on just in our discussion this morning. You talked about um, highlights. they're extending the retirement age. They're only doing that because they need pilots. Mm-hmm. They don't have enough. So they want to mm-hmm. keep these guys in the seat longer because they have to. Um, we, we had them retire early for safety. And, and you know, look, there's mm-hmm. a lot of really healthy, safe 63-year-olds. But the idea that they changed that, you have to look at why. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have a shortage of pilots. You have a shortage of mechanics. We have a shortage of everything these days, people-wise. So you can actually start to see some of this look like it might be coming true. Remember the pilot that landed the plane in the Hudson River? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. He
1: wasn't young, was he? No. No, you're right. Wasn't He it, wasn't young, wasn't but it he Sully? had experience. Yes. So yep. Yes, yeah, Sully. Sully. He had experience. And look at how many great owner-operators there are in their late 60s and I know. through their 70s and even some into the early 80s, when, when one company buys out another company and they come in and they get rid of all the older people oh. because their salaries are higher. Yeah. Just like a i fire Pete. i say, Pete, I'm paying you too much. You're out of here. <laughs> look, what I, look at the knowledge. Oh, 37 years and his twin brother, Pat, that does the pumps and injectors, he'll be 40 years this January. You can't replace that knowledge and you can hire all the people you want out of college and you're not going to get that. I'm going to tell you a quick story. I was thinking the other day, um, extrude home who uh, used to do our nozzles on the cats when we wanted to increase the flow by 30%. And by the way, they make the machines for Cummins cat in Detroit and they're not far from us. John Walco used to work there by the way. Um, The first time I'm walking to their plant with Danny Yonda, I used to race Corvettes with Danny. There's this older gray-haired guy, gray beard, sitting at a desk in the middle of the plant, leaning back on his chair, his legs outstretched, and his arms crossed, or his hands are crossed, his chest, and his eyes are closed. And I'm looking, this guy's not moving. I said, Danny, why do you let a guy sleep in the middle of the shop like that? He said, oh, he's not sleeping, Bruce. He's thinking. I said, what do you mean he's thinking? <laughs> People send us projects. Some of the engineers have no idea what to do. This guy's been with us since our beginning. Guy looked like he was about 70 years old at the time. Yeah. He says he's invaluable. He, We give him these new projects, and he'll sit there, and he'll think, and then he comes up with how we're going to do it. Extrude Honing, by the way, is a... It's similar to a silly putty with grit in it, and it's forced through an orifice and it polishes and hones as it passes through. Oh, yeah. And back when Cadillac came out with the North Star engine, all the aluminum components, the intake manifolds, were done that way. If you get a heart bypass, the tubes they use are extrude hones. A lot of the joints, knees, shoulders, hips are extrude honed.
0: Huh.
1: And the. The blades on the fins, fans for jet engines, they're extrude-honed. When you run it across aluminum, it changes the molecular structure of the aluminum. When we built our first engine to road race in Europe at 1,200 horsepower Big Cam back in no, no, 1993, It was during the recession in '92 when the guy called me. By the way, that engine was twenty-seven or twenty-eight thousand dollars, and now that was a lot of money back then. Yeah, but we had one thousand two hundred horsepower, and we couldn't keep the compressor wheel alive until we sent it to extrude hone, and they honed it and polishes it, and then we never had it fail. Wow! So to this day, we still have extrude home compressor wheels nice. that we use on some turbochargers mm-hmm. depending on the horsepower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Hey, two, two. And that was our proving ground was yours. Hey, by the way, that truck in, in 1993 won seven out of eight races in Europe. These were rally-type races and uh, won the European Road Racing Championship and was in a cab over, single axle. Oh, and the other thing the guy called... Burton-on-Trent, England. Pete, do you remember his name? He was from Burton-on-Trent, England. Ken Howard. <clears throat> he, he called me from a the, from the bad phone driving a Mercedes down the Autobahn in Germany, by the way, his first con- time he called me. But Cummins in Columbus, Indiana referred him to us and when he first was racing the truck, he said, I have a problem on the He said, I can't keep the tires spinning on the straightaway. They spin the whole straightaway. Wow. And I said, well, so that's just part of our past and some of the things we did years ago. You
0: know, two things. And interestingly oh, enough. Go ahead, Pete.
3: That engine ended up in the country of Malta.
0: Really? Yeah. Went after went... trans.
3: Transleader was the name of the company that bought it. And he was, it was a wrecking yard, right, Bruce? I think is what they did. Uh,
1: you know, I'm not sure. But yeah, Transleader was the name of that, that company.
3: The name of the company, I think they are a wrecking yard. But he ended up selling the company, sold the truck. And I get a phone call from Malta, and they're talking about an engine. I'm thinking, I, I'm not really sure what you're talking about. I, I know we built an engine for, you know, the company in, in England. They're like, yeah, we bought that truck. And it raced for years. Now, they drag raced it in Malta. Wow, I'm not sure there's enough land
1: to drive the truck in. Yet. <laughs> you know the reason he. You know the reason he sold it. He was going through a divorce. Oh. <laughs> he wanted to save the truck. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Boy. Hey, we had an owner operator from Bell Vernon Pennsylvania, going through a divorce and female judge, and she came out hard on him. And she said, Your ex wife gets half that Harley. He cut it in <laughs> two <laughs> with a saw. <laughs> he took them oh, both boy. into the courthouse. Oh, boy. He said, yeah. Which half does she want? <laughs> <laughs> uh what other industry do you get to hear stories like this Kevin I know
0: (laughs) a couple things out of that I want to go back to a couple things first off speaking of John Walco I need to reach out to him has anybody heard from him I haven't heard from John in like two months I I
1: think he's racing he must be you you catch him every now and then on Facebook
0: yeah you know for a long time he was was joining our Friday and maybe that's I'm not on Facebook anymore at all he was he was on our Friday show quite often and he'd miss a lot because he was racing. And then the last time we had him on, he said, my schedule should be clearing up. And then I haven't heard from him in months. I need to reach out and just see what he's up to. I keep thinking, you know, he'll, he'll call me this week or he'll be on the show this Friday and and here we are. He hasn't been on for a while. So I'm going to give him a call. The other thing um, I want to go back to this, Bruce, because we just had a discussion um, on the show and on, social media, pretty big debate about this idea that trucking is a commodity. And, and Craig Fuller from Freight Waves made that statement. And I, I've been saying that for a long time. And, it, and here's all it is. It, it, people lost their mind over this. They get all emotional and a, a commodity, a true commodity. We're not saying it really is a commodity. We're making an analogy. It's like a commodity. A true commodity is something like sugar on the stock market. There's a bunch of commodities that get traded on the stock market. And all it means is sugar is sugar. Oil is oil. There are no real brand names that matter. It's the same thing. Nobody cares. You just buy sugar if you need sugar. And there's a lot of products that are like that. So that's, that's all a commodity means. And if that's the case, if all if everybody's product is exactly the same, then the only thing left is just price and commodities sell at the cheapest price. Who cares? You just want the cheapest price. So trucking can be like a commodity. Nobody really cares all that much about service. If the freight gets there sort of on time and mostly undamaged, everybody's pretty happy. And the problem that creates, and we try to teach people how not to be a commodity, how to be so specialized in your service and have have a niche that you're so good at (laughs) that you're not a commodity, that people look to you and say, this is a little more complicated freight. It needs some care. We want somebody that really knows how to to do this right. That's where the owner operator should all be focused. You should not be out looking at that palletized van unless you figured out a way to make money with it, then go do it. But that's the kind of stuff that big carriers do. It's got to be easy. They have new drivers all the time. They need the easiest freight they can find. That's commodity kind of stuff. So owner operators would do far better if they would stay away from that stuff, go find this freight that really takes skill. But we were talking about pay and pay over time. And this is really unfortunate, but it is a truth in most of the trucking industry. You, you talked about an employee like Pete, and, and we have employees like this, and I could go on and on. You, in one sense, you can't replace these people. They, not only are they really experienced in a lot of things, but they're really experienced in your business and your system if they've been working there that long. That is impossible to replace at any price. So, but that almost never happens in trucking. They're, most freight does not require any specialized skill set. So guys that have been in the industry for 35 and 40 years are sometimes not making much more than a brand new driver. That's just how this industry works because the industry kind of says, we just don't value your experience and we don't value it because for the most part, our customers don't value it. The the people shipping palletized shrink wrap freight could care less for the most part, whether the driver's got two months experience or 40 years, because for the most part, the freight's going to get there. It's going to get delivered and nobody really cares and that we just have to realize that's the way it is. The only way to change it is to stop going after that freight and go after the the tough stuff. But as a company driver, there's just not any big career path here where you're going to make a lot more money. It, your, your experience is just not going to be valued. It's just, it's just not going to be paid for. And that's just, that's just how this industry works. You know, I spent nine years
1: in traffic and transportation and dispatch and, I, I felt differently. I, I know I you certain would. certain owner-operators <laughs> that, <laughs> that I dealt with, and never asked the price could care less, because I knew that when Jeff Lang took that grading to Peco in Chicago from Neville Island, part of Pittsburgh, uh, it would be tarped correctly. People didn't want to haul it because it would cut the tarps But I never had an issue. I never had my customer call and say, where's my freight? It was always on time. So Park Hill Tri-State and RL Jeffries with their low boys, I had the same relationship. I never had problems. And with some carriers or you know, I don't know whether they were owner operators or company drivers. The trailer would be found somewhere. I mean, hey, this is we're talking the early seventies, late sixties, early seventies. We didn't have cell phones. we didn't have ways of knowing where trucks were <laughs> and uh, and so and by the way, railroads i had I was forced to send several of these eleven foot high furnaces to uh, Seattle via railroad, and they told me, you're going to have to push the rail cars. I said, I'm I'm not going to be pushing a rail car. Well, they, they meant chase it. Every day I had to find out where it was. 22 days from Pittsburgh to Seattle via rail. Wow, And I learned at a young age that you'll never replace the trucking industry. The railroad can't do it. and uh, And then once you start working with owner-operators, you find out you can't replace owner-operators with company drivers. You can't do it. No. And it was service. I was more concerned with service. The fact that when so-and-so, the guy that I knew would pick it up, that it was going to get delivered on time and it wouldn't be damaged. And that headache was gone. Once once I saw him pulling out the gate with our freight, I knew my problem was gone. I know I went to the next one. I used to move like 34, 35 shipments a day out of Drivo. I'm not a day a week out of Drivo Corporation. And whenever there was damage it just really threw a monkey wrench into everything.
0: Yes, no doubt.
1: And then and Allied band lines. I had company drivers on the Allied band lines. This one guy was a thief. <laughs> if you had guns or tools, he would steal them. But yet the union protected him.
0: Oh, so don't get me we were always looking that. we had
1: um you know, we had owner operators and we had company drivers and the uh, valuable Freight and the valuable furniture, and the uh, that we handled USDO, Alco, and H.J. Hines. We always used owner operators to move their freight.
0: And that's kind of my point. There's freight out there that is better suited for owner operators or drivers with more experience, more conscientious. But there's an awful lot of freight. The majority of the freight that moves every day is not that freight. It's the palletized shrink wrap commodity kind of freight that almost anybody can move. And we hate to hear that, but it's just the reality. I've been saying it for years. You you just, whether we like it or not, you just have to face the reality. And that's it. You you see 35-year drivers getting paid. Sometimes they go to a new carrier, they get the exact same pay as, as somebody with less than a year experience. That's just how this industry works. So, so you the only way you can change that is to change it yourself you got to go out and find those jobs and that freight that where where the experience is valued but it's a, it's it's yep. niches it's not the majority of the freight so I thought that was interesting that you know there are businesses where where experience really is valuable and people get paid more and more every year that they build that experience that just doesn't happen in this industry for drivers mmm and you know, uh, you know how I found Leroy. I
1: was I was coming out of church, and I said <laughs> to the minister, "This is the Alliance Church. He rides a Harley Davidson. A lot of a lot of motorcyclists at this church. Very safe church to be in, by the way." There you go. And I said, "I'm looking for a gearhead electrical engineer," and the guy behind me started laughing. And you know you shake the minister's hand as you go out the door. Right. And he said, "Where are you going to find that <laughs> next week?" I find Leroy. <laughs> I don't know if Leroy ever heard that story. But,
0: well, Bruce, here, here's the thing: you you were at church and you were asking, and you got it. Ask and you shall receive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. See how that works? And now, you now you we're all the story stuck with Leroy? J- Do you ever hear
1: this? And yeah, do you hear this story on Jr?
0: I don't think I did. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, well, I did. Know he a was a big in, guy, right?
1: He was in 5, California. Six, five, four hundred pound, eight size. That's right. Yeah, yeah he was a big guy. size 18 shoe. Yeah. <laughs> In Riverside, California, an electrical engineer for Samsung Televisions. And, you know, he likes to wear black T-shirts, and he comes, and he stands in my door, and he fills up the doorway. Yeah, and does. I'm leaning back in my chair. He said, I'm here to apply as an electrical engineer. <laughs> and I said, you're not an electrical engineer. They're not big like you. They're little or guys like me and Leroy. Yeah. You know, we can fit into places. And he said, I'm an electrical engineer from Samsung Television. I said, what are you doing? And North of Pittsburgh, he said, and my wife did a study, and this is one of the most economical places to live. It is, too. The cost of living. Plus, our brother lived there. And, yeah, I mean, when I bought my house 16 years ago, it was $87 a square foot. Brand new house, and that included the property. Bruce. It's unheard of.
0: Just to give you a little uh, comparison there, we're looking at a property right now. We've been looking at property for a while, a couple of years. I mean, we've bought some property out here. It's kind of our retirement plan. All the money we took out of the market and we're just investing in properties out here that would make good vacation rentals. It's a, there's a lot of money to be made out here with that. Um, but the property we're currently looking at, $546 a square foot. Wow. Wow. That's, yeah, come to western crazy. Pennsylvania. Come to the northern
1: part of western Pennsylvania, and you can do it for $100. I,
0: I, I'm aware so of that. I, said, I just told, sold two properties in Salem, Ohio, and I, I was just – it was awful how little we got for them.
1: Yeah, there you go. So I said to JR, I I said, what do you know about the ECMs on trucks? He said, nothing. I <laughs> said, so at least he's honest. right. <laughs> he said then he said to me, But do they have printed circuit boards? So I said, Yes. He said, Then I can fix them. There you go. And I said, Hold up your hand and he held up his big paw and I <laughs> said, You can't touch <laughs> <fix> it <laughs> You know? I'm having fun with this guy right. now because I'm figuring he's just gonna walk away. Right. And he said, Oh yes I can and I'm watched him that one Leroy, what's that uh i want to call it a chip that you replace in the Detroits. It's about an inch and a quarter. It has 128 solder joints around
2: oh. it. Oh, oh, Yeah. A uh, memory chip. Oof.
1: memory chip. And I've watched them solder. 128 solder joints around something that's an inch and a quarter by an inch and a quarter. Wow. And uh, so when he said that, now, I didn't know that he was a gearhead. Oh, yeah, so you know, in our industry, if you're not a gearhead, it's really not the industry for you. right. It's a gearhead industry. It is. Uh, uh, so uh, I said with that with, with that answer, I had to give him a try. And, uh, And, you know, Bruce, um, he's turned out to be a phenomenal employee. Yeah, he really is.
0: Yeah, I I was just going to say, I've studied success my whole life. I'm (laughs) just fascinated by it. I read biographies of, you know, people that have started companies and, and I pay attention and I watch and. Um, I've watched your company for a long time, and there are a couple reasons why you're really successful. Hey, two that come to mind. One, your curiosity. You're curious about everything. I, I've never seen anybody that can ask so many questions. Um, it's, you're just always curious. That's, a, that's an important part. But more important than that, um, you absolutely have a knack for, for finding and keeping really good employees. You really do. Find people smarter than me. Yeah, that yeah, you're, can, you're, that's that's a, a big part go. of your success. You you just have amazing employees. A lot of people don't want to hire people that know more than they do. That's a mistake. Yeah, yeah, really is. All right, um, we've been talking for well hey, uh, over an hour. What, we should probably get to some calls. Yeah, one <laughs> other thing point. I noticed. I noticed working some truck
1: shows, um, some. Families that have five or six or eight or 10 trucks, one of their sons or daughters will go on to college and study business and come back to the family business. And if mom and dad are smart enough to listen Mm -hmm. and let the child take over and be part of management, the business really takes off.
0: You know, Bruce, it's funny. One of two things usually happens. It, the scenario you just outlined in trucking is really common. The company gets started by somebody who might not even have a high school education. I mean, that, that's not uncommon in this business. And, and it grows to a certain point might be multiple trucks might be doing really well. It's tough to get beyond a certain point without, some people can do it, but, but it's tough to get past a certain point in size Without some of that stuff, people do learn in college, finance and, and some other things. So sometimes you will see that second generation really take over and, and break through that barrier and actually start growing a real company. You know, you might get up to 100 trucks or you see that. I've also seen the opposite. And you see this in every industry where the next generation destroys the business. They're just entitled they don't realize how hard, you know, their parents yeah. or their grandparents work to build this and they've been handed right. everything their whole life and they just destroy the business. Seems like one of those two extremes mm-hmm. happens after, you know, a new generation comes in. Well, you met our Bill Feldman, right? Yeah. Yeah. Bill's a good
1: guy. I like Bill. You know, he's, he's now the president and, and he moved me, Eaton Bill moved me to CEO But then Pete and Bill run the business, and Bill taught at Carnegie Mellon University, taught business. He grew two businesses and sold them, and he's been very successful. And he looks at things totally different than what Pete and I, uh, we look at. But yet, Bill is somewhat of a gearhead, likes fine automobiles. He enjoys looking at the beautiful trucks. And um, when an outstanding truck... He's in the shop. He'll climb up in and look at it and things. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a godsend because of the way he looks at the financial side of business versus He's sharp. So. Yeah, he really is. Yeah. Yep. yep. All that's right. I that's, we, that's why we were able to get OPS and things. Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah. Good stuff. All right. We could do this all day long. I'm having fun with it, but we have a lot of calls on the line. So we are going to start tackling some. Thanks for being patient. Eric, it's your turn.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much. So we just uh, bought what. Yeah, I'll put it out there here in a minute. <laughs> Sorry. Uh right. we just bought two uh day cab trucks. Uh uh build date of uh quarter 1, we should get them quarter 2. Uh 450 horse uh gen 5 uh uh 8013s with uh 241 rears. I almost got them talked into uh 226s or 228s. I don't remember what the number was. Uh but they said they wouldn't do that uh for a uh local operation.
0: Was startability oh, was probably their issue, figure. right? Yeah. So and let's, uh, let's anyways, talk about that a for a dire- second, because we've talked about startability yeah. here before, and we're, we're kind of known around here for kind of breaking the limits. You know, if they say a transmission is, you know, rated for this torque rating, we know we can take it way beyond that and take care of it, and it will still last so we, we understand what the limits are. Mm-hmm. We know what real limits are. Uh, that's kind of the same thing we've got going on here. We have broken that limit of startability many times and said, yeah, you're out of the range, but you're going to be okay. And But here's a difference. On an over-the-road operation— If we break that limit on startability a little bit, how many times in a a month are we really using that? But in a local operation, you do have to be careful of that because you're going to be doing it so much more. You're going to be working that truck harder than it should be to get it rolling over and over and over again. So I, I, I kind of agree with their thought on this one.
5: Well, okay, so most,
4: most of our freight is, uh, we, we go out and pick up a bunch of parcels. the locals. Okay.
0: Uh,
4: our, our local guys go out and pick up a bunch of parcels. Uh, every great once in a while, we'll pick up full truck load. Like, uh,
0: and, I'm doing yeah. three of them today
4: so, that are 43,000 pounds.
0: So that, that would so matter. And, and the engineers look at what's possible. So when they look at this, they go, well, this is an 80,000-pound uh, vehicle. And that that's what they look at for their startability. If you know, hey, we never get anywhere near that. We're running around light all the time. Then you're right. It wouldn't have been that big of a deal. So where are you located? Uh, i
4: trying to figure out. Uh, we are uh, up around Minneapolis.
1: So Minnesota, you have a lot of rolling hills there.
4: Not not so much, no. <laughs> we do when we go out to like Amory, Wisconsin, or something like that, but uh, okay. we don't we don't do that but about once or twice a month hmm.
1: no it's uh it's, it's pretty flat. level okay
4: yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty flat okay uh, we got uh a couple of loads like I said that are that weigh a little bit um what I'm trying to figure out is where do I wanna set this uh cruise control set up at? So it's max torque is 1,550 at 975 RPM, uh, direct drive, uh, 12-speed automated manual.
0: I like the setup. It sounds like really good specs for what you're doing. I'm not sure what you mean when you say where do we want to set it up on cruise control. What are are we talking about?
4: Well, I mean, uh, uh,
0: my highway speed, what should the highway speed be set at? You mean at like a limiter, a maximum speed? Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely
4: going to put it. yeah the, the company drivers. So yeah,
0: um, I I don't know that this that your specs are all that important here. I mean you, you've got a decent range, not a, not a huge range with that direct drive transmission. But again, we're running local, so it's not like we're going to be spending a lot of time out on the highway. Um, honestly, in a local operation. If it were me, I'd set it at like 63 to 65. Awesome. That's what I was thinking was about 65. That's where I'd put it. There's, look, you know, you could make an argument and people try to make it all the time that if I'm going across the country, the time I can make up, you know, pushing 75 and 80 miles an hour against your 65, there is an argument there. Um, It usually doesn't hold up when you start looking at cost, but at least you could make the argument that, look, I went faster and I got done way before you did. In a local operation, going 80 miles an hour once in a while on the interstate isn't going to save you a bit of time. It's just not worth bothering. Oh, Lord, no. Right. So so why even, you know, why even 70 in that operation? It just wouldn't make sense. And these trucks are spec'd to really be efficient at 65 and less.
4: Yeah, I'm going to put the, uh, the acceleration rate at the bare minimum, as low as I can as low as I can get them to set it.
0: Um, kind uh, of what next... I don't know on the DD-13, I was really familiar with this setting on the 60 series, was the progressive shift setting. You, you just turned it on. That's all you had to do. And, and it mapped the rest of that stuff, and it wouldn't allow you to over-accelerate in each gear.
4: Okay, so my next question is: hey, is What well, we, we have the, ex- oh, we have the okay. expert
0: here on that, Leroy? Uh, yeah. W- what's the difference in these new? I mean, you're familiar with the the setting in the Series 60, right? The progressive shift. Yeah. It, what do we have now? I mean, can you do anything with these newer engines along those lines? As far as configuring progressive shift.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just as configurable as it used to be in a sixty series. I mean, you're just setting at which gear do I want to limit the RPM to this? do I want to limit the low side gears to sixteen hundred rpm and then give you a little bit more in the high end? Yeah. do I want to set the fourteen right. uh, the The configurability is really the same. I typically don't give people progressive shift if they just if they can't control themselves, then you have to give them progressive shift, <laughs> so otherwise that's the private like instead of letting the computer
0: do it. That, that's a good point and that's yeah, how that's we the used problem. it i just want to. We, we used it more right. as a training tool for owner operators rather than something to put on a fleet and set it that way we i would tell people turn it on turn on the progressive shift drive it for a couple weeks and then decide it it is tell it will show you how to be efficient now it can be annoying sometimes to have it turn on and always be limited to that um, but I've, I also did some testing. It, it was pretty interesting that the acceleration rate of the truck, once you learned how to progressive shift properly, the truck accelerated faster than if you didn't have it on. But you had to learn how to drive it. And here was the problem. When you're not used to this limiting, you accelerate in that those low gears especially, and within a couple of seconds, you're already hitting that limit on the progressive shift and you need to shift quick. Well, we don't, we, if you, if you don't have it on you blow right past that point, every gear. I mean, you're just winding every gear way out. Then what happens that driver, if you turn on progressive shift, the the truck limits, the RPM, his brain hasn't figured it out yet. And you hit that limit and he holds his foot to the floor two or three more seconds before he actually makes the shift. And then they'll come back and say, You're, I'm going to kill somebody because I pull out in front of everybody and I can't get moving. But it's just a, it's a learning curve. You just have to learn how to. And then I'll tell people, look, turn it on, see what it is, learn how to drive like that, and then turn it back off. We, we kind of used it as a, as a learning tool. I mean, it's not just good for fuel economy. It's good for your tires. It's good for your driveline. It is a much easier um, acceleration when it's turned on.
1: You know, Kevin, when you drive the old mechanical engines, you do the same with the turbo boost gauge. Yeah. You just give it a little bit of fuel. And let's say when you're in the low side of the transmission, you only need two, three, four pounds of turbo boost. And you get into the high side, you only need 10, 12, or 15 pounds. Yeah. And as you get further up in speed, you just give a little more. And if you do that for a couple days, your mind... Will automatically do that. Yep. So, Absolutely. truckers of the past never needed, never needed that. I never needed that when I drove my Kenworth. Never needed somebody to tell me, it, uh, don't be pushing too much right. on the pedal.
0: The, the the thought process behind progressive shift. The easiest way to explain it is you stay in each gear the shortest amount of time possible. Each gear, you just get to the point where the next gear will pick up okay. You don't want to go past that point. And that's really all progressive shifting is.
4: All right. So I plan on putting the OPS and the uh, uh, brake safe on, on these trucks. Uh, what, can, what else can I do for efficiency without adding any, any extra power to them?
0: I still like air tabs and flow below two uh, trucks going to come with a flow blow. Excellent. I've got air tabs. Excellent. Yeah. Those, those are two. Uh, we did go with uh, full upper arrow, but no lower arrow. Here's one of the things you might be shocked about. I was shocked. I blew it on this. Um, when I was building trucks and every new truck I bought, I tried to make it more efficient than the last truck. And I tried to learn more. And then at some point, um, with my contract at FedEx, I had always bought sleepers. It's all I ever had. I had single axle sleepers, Um, and I thought, why do I keep buying these sleepers, especially if I'm buying new trucks when I just go spec a good day cab, it's going to be lighter, shorter, more maneuverable. The fuel economy should go up. I was wrong. Fuel economy actually went down. You, you really, you're not long enough to get there. That's it. The tractor's not long enough to have good aerodynamics. And I actually went back. I bought two day cabs new Spectrum really well and was actually a little disappointed with some of my fuel mileage. And after that, I went back to sleepers. So you lose a little bit yeah, on those short day few- cabs.
4: Yeah, we've got we've got quite a few that uh, we have to blindside into it. It's really oh, really it's, nice it, to it, have a back window. It, it's so.
0: nice. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. Well, Running yeah, around the city in super, a single super axle tight day cab, parking right. lot sometimes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you're not giving up much. Um, the other thing to remember in a local operation is rolling resistance is more important than aerodynamics. So think about that. anything we can do to re- reduce both rolling resistance and mechanical resistance in the drive line, because again, think about it. Those things are happening over and over and over through that acceleration. We're not getting to the speed very often where aerodynamics matter much, but we spend a lot of time at those speeds where drag matters a lot.
4: I think I need to call Joel and find out uh, if what I would be looking at as far as uh, using the Spicer XFE in here. That he, uh, rather, it makes as much sense in this as it does on an over-the-road truck.
0: Those are the kind of details you really got to spend some time on and look at differently in your operation.
4: Yeah, I know he said it was like $4,000 savings last year right. at the fuel prices we had last year.
0: Yep. Well,
4: that's all I had.
0: All right. Thank you very much for your help. You're welcome. Good stuff. Let's go to Pennsylvania. Luke, welcome.
6: Good day, gentlemen. Uh, I want to get a look at an oil sample that I sent over.
0: All right. I've got it here in front of me. Pete, I think you've got it, too. We've got uh, an ISX. What year is it? 13.
6: Uh, I think the engine was built in 11, but it's in a 2000.
0: Um, I'm, uh, I'm wondering then, has this thing been rebuilt? Yes. Okay. Um, so since the rebuild, we've got 321,000 miles on it. Is that correct? Yes. And about 25,000 on the oil, which is perfect. So, um, how come you're not running the catalyst? Hello? Can you hear me? Oh, now I can go ahead. Uh- no, what were you saying? Uh, I asked why you're not running the Catalyst, especially on an ISX.
6: Um, This truck is deleted. I've run it some. I don't run it all the time.
0: Why is it deleted?
6: I didn't know any better when I did it.
0: Ah, uh, okay. Uh, I would still run the Catalyst. I know. Okay. You, I, I know you're not based on your iron number. I mean, it's just something I can see in an oil sample. Other than that... <laughs> Um, I, I will say uh, for a deleted engine because sometimes we see these deletes and the engines are just run awful after that. Um, this one seems to be doing pretty well. I mean, we have no no fuel dilution. We have soot less than point 0one percent. Doesn't get any better than that. We don't have any real wear metals to speak of. The the aluminum's a little weird. I'm going to come back to that. The little bit of potassium that they flagged is no big deal. That's a very low number, and there's no sodium. Your base held up pretty well. We're still down. We're still at three, which we're, we're fine there. So it, this is a really good sample. I'm surprised this is a deleted engine. Yeah. Somebody may have done something beast. right, or I mean, I, the the numbers look really good. What's your question about the base? And then I want to come back to that aluminum.
6: The bit. The base, is
0: that okay, or should I add some base to it? Um, how long do you plan on running the soil? Bill, the sample says I need to change it. Yeah, then go ahead and add some base. It's time. If we, we don't want to let it get okay. below about two would be really critical, two and a half. So you're at 3.3, <laughs> and you know you want to keep running this oil, so I would add some base, yeah. Okay. Now, I want to go back to the aluminum. Pete? Bruce, I don't see many samples ever where aluminum jumps up all by itself. It's not a huge jump but 16. 16 is no, not right. a high for aluminum. But I almost, uh, the other wear metals yeah. are so low. What 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 are we looking at here? Pete, any thoughts? Pete, does is the ISX have
1: aluminum thrust washers on the crank?
0: I, I don't know. It's been so
3: long since I rolled bearings in a uh, I don't know if they are or not, um, but it, it's not a piston because it's a steel piston. It's a monotherm piston, so it's not a uh, piston skirt. Um, unlike the DD-15, DD-13 platform where they have that um, cam assembly that, that, that up on top of the, the cylinder head is aluminum, and they don't have bearings in there. Cummins doesn't have it. They have you know cam bushings. Um, so I don't know where it's coming from. That's unusual especially with the copper, lead, tin all being down So low. You know, if all those were up, maybe I guess bearings, but that doesn't indicate a bearing. It can't be a piston because there's monotherm steel pistons. You know, again, maybe do a sample in 10 or 12,000 miles just to see if that continues to rise or it was just a fluke.
0: Yeah, that, that's just an okay. odd number. There's such a clean sample and to see one wear metal climb like that without the others is just odd. Okay. <laughs> Just something to keep an eye on.
3: Okay. Do you I'll add any antifreeze? you had to add any antifreeze? Mm-hmm.
6: I had an external leak. I had to add some, but I don't know that I've had to add. No, I haven't had it for an internal leak.
3: Okay. Yeah, with the potassium in there, I didn't know if, if you you know, yeah, you were adding some. minutely, you know, small amounts here and there, and not think about it because oh, it's a pint here or pint there, and you're not concerned about it. But if you're not adding anything, uh, that's unusual as well. Mm-hmm. Have you been in really a dusty environment, like like any type of wine um, or?
6: Oh well, I get into a lot of like fields and dirt yards. I a whole lot of logs, and we're back in field lanes. And the sawmill yards are all dusty.
0: Hmm. Hmm. All right. I let's don't know just, if that's possible. Maybe let's let's uh let's just keep an eye on that one. Okay, I'll continue to monitor it, see
6: where it goes.
0: All right. Sounds good.
6: Thanks for the help.
0: You're welcome. Let's go to Colorado. JD, welcome to the program.
7: Hello. How are you doing, fellas? Good.
6: What's
0: on your mind?
7: Uh, I had a question about some fuel mileage. I got a new 2023 Freightliner Cascadia Midtop, and uh, I gave the specs real quick on it. I uh, got 358 gears, a 13 speed heat and transmission and running tall rubber. I uh, pull a drain wagon, uh, coast to coast, and the best I've been able to get is about 6.5 on uh, fuel mileage out of running 64 miles an hour.
0: Let's um, go back to the beginning. Give me the the year, make an engine again.
7: Uh, the year is 2023, and uh, I got the DD15 in it.
0: Why did we go with three fifty eight?
5: Uh company truck.
0: Oh, okay. So this isn't your truck. No, sir,
7: okay. no, sir. I uh, switched over to Cascadia because I'm about to buy my own, and I was wanting to get some uh, numbers. So.
0: Yeah, well, don't pay attention to these numbers. 358s, I mean, we might as well be back in you know nineteen ninety eight. Um, those just aren't the kind of gears we're running on these trucks anymore not even close i mean almost everything now if we want fuel economy we're going to be down in the low to mid twos on gear ratios some combination yep. um, might there's still a couple combinations we actually like the 264s on but we're we're really not running anything in the threes anymore um, we're running low to mid twos, overdrive sometimes, one gear, you know, one overdrive. Um, so that that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem here, if this isn't your truck, I mean, there's only so many things we can help you with fuel economy on. We can't really talk about modifications. I kind of doubt that, yes, sir, that I was- the company's going to run the catalyst unless you pay for it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we could talk about driving style and idling and some of the other stuff, but this is not a good example for you of what's possible out of this platform.
7: Yes, sir. No, I understand that. I was just curious if that was the probably the best this truck would probably get is six five. No, that's still seems Why low. It, is it
1: we would really Is it twenty four? Go ahead, Bruce. Is it twenty four five tall rubber? You said tall, but you didn't put a number in front of it.
7: Yes, sir. Eleven R twenty four fives.
1: Okay. Do you know why they buy that tire?
7: I think they just had a, a decent deal on a couple of these trucks, and just they didn't real they didn't spec them right, and they just had a
1: decent deal on them. So what's what's your RPM at your cruising speed, and what's your cruising speed?
7: Uh, I'm cruising uh, mainly about 54 miles an hour at 1,300 RPM.
0: Did you say okay. 54? 60. 64. No, thir- 64. 64. I was going to say, man, at 54, that fuel mileage is horrible. Mm. Um, it's still not great at 64, no. really. You should be doing better. <laughs> So it's it basically, Kevin, it's the tires. he's you know, basically
1: equivalent to a 3.08 gear ratio yeah. with the tall rubber with the
0: 358s, but it's the tires that are hurting them. Yeah, the, the tall rubber, the big sidewalls. I mean, we're losing a lot of efficiency in that tire. And I'm sure we could go through this truck and find... You know, five other reasons why the fuel mileage isn't great. I mean, any fleet that specs these kind of gears and doesn't really pay attention, they're missing a lot of efficiency. I'm sure. Yes, yeah, sir. I, I was just—I didn't know if you—if
7: I could. There, that
0: was but just the best it was going to get out of this truck. The way it's set up right now, <laughs> you're, you're not going to do much better. I mean, it's running at 64. That—that's a pretty reasonable speed for fuel economy, and we're still not getting it. Um here's what would be possible. We we've done this enough times to know that if we pulled that shop into the Bay of Pittsburgh power and said what can we do to get fuel economy eight would not be out of the question. We could work on that truck and get it to eight. Um if we were willing to spend, you know, money on gears we could go even further. We, I mean, we, there's no reason we couldn't be looking at nine, but it's going to cost us a bunch yeah. because they, they missed out on specking this thing right the first time.
1: Yes, yeah, sir. Kevin, you uh, haven't talked about the rolling resistance of tires and what the numbers are and what they... The tires with low rolling resistance versus the tires with high rolling resistance. I had this question yesterday on the telephone, and guy wanted to know the difference. And the very first CMC I went to that you had in Ohio... You said it was $6,000 a year in fuel savings. And why don't you just touch on rolling resistance and what the good numbers are versus the bad numbers?
0: Yeah, so that $6,000 was an extreme case. It was a truck that had some of the worst rolling resistance tires. They were up in the 150s was the number Uh, on the drives. And he had lousy trailer tires and the steer you know, we're to the point now where I tell people on your steer tires, don't even look at rolling resistance. They're all, all of the good quality steer tires are so close, and that axle doesn't affect rolling resistance as much. So ignore it on your steer tires. Buy a good quality even steer tire that you like. It wears well. That's far more important than rolling resistance. The, the drive axle yeah i wouldn't want one of those and it's not so much because of the rolling resistance i just don't want to deal with those old tires anymore nobody wants them you can't get you know decent credit on them um so no on the steer i I always go low profile 22.5 unless i have some sort of a height issue uh on the drive is critical that truck I, i remember from that example had a rolling resistance of like 155 and we were able to drop it down into the 90s. This trailer had like 120, and we were able to get that down into the 80s, I think. And we were able to pick up like six-tenths of a mile per gallon just on tires. And back then, that was, you know, about $6,000 was what it was costing. Here's, if you look up the numbers, here's how it works. Roughly for every 10 points you drop rolling resistance, you'll pick up one-tenth of a mile per gallon. Okay, and how does an owner-operator find out the rolling resistance? Uh, Michelin is the best source. Go to your search engine and type in Michelin Commercial Tire Calculator. That one works every time. Um, It'll come right up to the top, and then you... the. The new comparison, and I actually helped him build this new system, was you put in the tires you currently have, and then the system will let you compare any other tire and show you the savings without you needing to know the numbers. The old system, you went in and you could calculate all the numbers, but you had to understand them. And a lot of people didn't, and we were having a hard time explaining it. So I helped them build a new system where you just put in what you have and then pick another tire, and it will show you the fuel savings right down to the dollar.
1: Okay. So let's say a guy goes into Goodyear or... Uh, Yokohama or Hanook or any of those tires and he's talking to a person at the counter and he wants to buy some drive tires he should ask them the rolling resistance and chances
0: are they're going to look at them
1: and not know what that is exactly so then
0: what do you do then you go to Michelin and just do it yourself you just go calculate it yourself and you walk in and you tell the dealer which tire you want don't ever ask them don't ever ask them which tire you want for low rolling resistance. They won't have a clue. You got to go do the math yourself, or you could always call the show and we'll help you with it. We do that too. Hi. Kevin, last question real quick, uh, if you don't mind. If when I go to need new tires
7: on this thing, would it be more beneficial to get some 22.5s or low
0: pro 24s? I No, I, I just, I would get rid of those 24s. They're old school where nobody's running them anymore. There's no reason to run them except in certain mm-hmm. operations where we need some height on the axle. That's about the only time they make any sense to me. Other than that, they're harder to find if something goes wrong. You don't get any credit for them. They're not very efficient. Let's just get rid of those things. Gotcha. So, I, I appreciate you guys. You guys do an awesome job. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for the call.
1: Kevin, Let's, some older owner operators will say the tire, the tall four five, rides smoother.
0: It does. There's no doubt. I agree with that. And it lasts <laughs> longer. It has to. Yeah. I I mean, there's more rubber there. There's a lot more rubber there. That's why we have the increased drag. So that's a double-edged sword. Sure, it makes that tire last longer, but it's costing you money. We don't want it to last long. The longer it lasts, the more money you lose. We'd just rather switch to a good efficient
1: tire. tire. When I buy new tires for a pickup truck or a car, I try to buy the hardest compound I can find. To get the most mileage out of the tire, I one time had some Pirellis. I loved the tire, but on a you know, on a. Nineteen ninety Nissan maxim I got twelve thousand miles out of them. I was pretty upset with that. I went back to Tire America. They said, "Well, it's a really soft compound. That's why it has such a high rating." Right. I said, "But my God, twelve thousand miles! I should get thirty-six thousand miles." Yeah. And uh, so that made me start to look at the compound, and if it doesn't have a uh, hard compound, I don't.
0: I stay away from. So tires can get Uh, pretty complicated. you start Man, looking at about cars, no? right? Right. You, you start looking at what contributes to rolling resistance, and it gets pretty complicated. The tread compound, the rubber compound itself. You just talked about that. The tread pattern affects it. You know, a a, a lug tire um, gets worse rolling resistance than like a all position or a steer tire that that ribbed. Pattern is more efficient than a lug pattern. The sidewall design has an, a big impact on rolling resistance and the sidewall size. The taller that sidewall is, the more it's going to flex and flex creates heat. Heat is lost energy. That, that's efficiency. So when we see these super low profile tires, um, they ride awful because there's no flex in that sidewall but it's very efficient. Okay. So sometimes we give up a little bit of ride. Sometimes we even give up a little bit of handling and a little bit of traction, nothing that really matters all that much. If we want to squeeze out a little more efficiency. All right, let's grab another call. Oh, by the way, I did hear from John, I guess we got a text a while back. I must've missed it. Uh, Angie sent it over to me. Um, he was in the wind tunnel all day, uh, it's been a really busy summer for him racing Bruce you were right he hasn't been around but when he when he makes it back to us he's gonna have a lot to talk about so we can look forward to that okay. all right let's uh let's go to Iowa John welcome
6: hey Kevin hey uh Pittsburgh power there um 13 speed double over your most um inefficient gear is
0: 12 gear correct can does go to I'm a little confused. Really I am. I I don't know that I completely grasp this. I always thought the the deeper we go into overdrive, the less efficient that's going to be. I uh, once
1: I once heard that somebody at Eaton said on a double over 18 or 13, they don't want you to constantly be a half a year down. But the owner-operators that are running that way are not having right. transmission issues.
0: Yeah, we never have. I've heard that, too, and people have brought that up, and I've said, well, we just don't see that in the real world. But I, but I always thought, the, and this is why those Allison transmissions are so inefficient. Like my coach that's a 0.62 final gear. That's just a really inefficient yeah. gear. It's horrible. It's a
1: horrible design transmission. Maybe we could get somebody from Eaton, an older guy that knows these older transmissions, an Eaton engineer on this show, and he could explain to us why that is. Maybe it was just a rumor.
0: Yeah, like I said, I'm 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 not confident of my answer either way. I don't know if it's 12th or 13th or 17th or 18th. I, I'm just not confident. I always thought the deeper we went into overdrive, the less efficient it was going to be. All
5: right, so go ahead with the question. Under, well, from what I
6: understood with you guys, the Twelfth gear, the direction was changing multiple times, and so I was wondering if it would be the same way on the single over or the thirteen-speed single over. So your direct would be the twelfth gear spot. spot. That's Would it still
1: have the multiple directional change. So it no. will be a little, no. okay. The old 12, 5, 13, and 14, 6, 13s that were single over 0. 0.85. When you're in 12th gear, you're in direct gear, and that's your most efficient gear. We just don't talk a lot about okay. that transmission because that's that was a long time ago.
0: The other thing that's adding confusion okay. to this conversation, both the transmissions have changed. So that, that we have new transmissions that aren't inefficient in those gears anymore, whole new designs. And engine architecture has changed where we're now taking into account piston speed. So now it's confusing. We We have to understand two different setups and the answers aren't always the same anymore. There's one thought process and set of answers for the older engines and transmissions. And we have to look at these new engines and transmissions differently. It's, it's not out of the question anymore. We're speccing a lot of trucks to spend their time in an overdrive gear. And we're okay with that. It works.
6: Now, yeah, I'm if just thinking me- about it because I am in an older truck. My truck's a 99, so I'm just trying to figure yeah. it out for future yeah. changes.
1: Yeah. Well, wait a second, 99 still a new truck Because those are double overs If you were yep. in a 79 or an 85 A or B model Kenworth or 359 Pete It would be Different, but usually you're still in a standard double over so, 13. I mean, that's that all started in the in around 91, 92, I think.
0: Maybe right, Bruce, 93. You, you just added three scenarios, you're going far enough back to add three. So, yeah, the, the late 90s, early 2000s that's one kind of setup with the electronics, and but we're now into these new generation <laughs> transmissions that are changing everything about should we be in overdrive or not? So there's really, uh, and and you deal with this in your shop, you're st- still dealing with mechanical engines. And so, you know, you guys have to balance really three different generations of how we spec things.
1: And so maybe we better get back to his original question.
0: Uh, I forgot what it was. <laughs> it twelfth. So if, I, if, yeah, if I
6: were to re-gear this and eventually drop it down to a single overdrive 13 speed, I wouldn't have the multiple oil turns or the multiple change of direction of the transmission oh. losing
7: efficiency.
1: Are you in a 2WS Caterpillar? Nope, N14. N14. And what? what's the total boost that it makes?
6: Uh, about 35 right now.
1: Thirty-five. So a five and a quarter is thirty-two. So you're up. Uh, you're up to five fifty, five sixty. Your torque is going to be higher than i mean uh, a lot higher than what a single over 13 is rated i think the highest okay and somebody somebody can tell me if i'm wrong send me a message or call but i think the 1400 series and you're probably at 1800 to 2000 foot pound of torque so i would not recommend that what gears are you currently running oh i'm not very
6: proud of the 373s i want to drop it down to a 264
1: eventually, but I guess okay. What speed do you drive? Uh, 60 60, okay. 60 62. Okay, are you low pro 22.5 tire? Oh, not right now
6: I, because of the from what I was told because of the 373 gears, they put 24 uh, 24.5 low pros on here
1: so Okay, so that, time that takes your 370 down to about a 355. Right so what's your RPM at
6: sixty? Uh, right at sixty is about fourteen fifty uh, in twelfth
1: twelfth gear. So I'm um, fifty in twelfth. So yeah. What what's if you go to thirteenth gear, your too your RPMs are too low. Maybe you need to pick your speed up a little bit and run thirteenth gear. Are you driving right now? In the middle of a construction zone.
6: Okay. So I I am driving, but I can't pick up the speed to chuck things.
0: Hello? What happened? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, Bruce? We lost Bruce. This whole call is just gone. I didn't do it either. I wasn't even on that screen, so it wasn't me. Sometimes I do hang up on people. Yesterday, I hung up on myself again. I don't know what happened to Bruce, and he was the one that was, uh, oh, here he comes. He's coming back in. Wait a second. Uh, let me bring him in. Bruce, what happened?
1: I don't know. All of a sudden, I heard Dalton. somebody didn't want to hear me talk. Huh, that
0: was weird. Go ahead. Pick up where you <laughs> left off.
1: I, I wouldn't. If he's out of construction, I'd like him to take it up to sixty-five and thirteenth gear and let's see what his RPM is. Uh see here. I'm sixty
7: two and
6: thirteenth right now. Or sixty and thirteenth, and I'm at fourteen hundred
1: no 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 you just told me that you were at 1450 in 12th gear at 60. Uh, okay so, so you're not gonna, yeah you're going to uh, change way more than 50 rpm
6: right uh if i'm 60 i'm at right around 1400 if i drop her down to 12 i'm about 1575 so I was a little bit off on my uh, numbers.
1: Okay. Um, you're geared okay. If you're going to go to the low twenty 22.5 tire and the 264 gear and run it in 11th gear, you'll be perfect.
5: Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's a future,
6: future goal on changing things over. So thank you very much All for right. the help, and
0: uh, we'll go with that. Thank you again. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Iowa. Matt, welcome. Good morning, everyone. What's on your mind?
8: Uh, so just add to that last call, and the 12th gear in a 13-speed, the key word we need to talk about is a dual countershaft transmission. Right. Not just a double overdrive. Correct. So in that situation, yes, you are not in a very efficient gear, one gear down because you're turning both counter shafts and you're so, turning the back box.
0: But let's go back to because I think his question was about a double overdrive. So doesn't yes. thirteenth makes that worse than twelfth because we're still turning all the shafts and we've got a deeper reduction.
7: I
8: don't think so. I don't See, I think that's in where 13th, I'm confused. You're only turning one
0: counter shaft. That's yeah. where I'm confused. Is and it, then is it because if it start- of the half gear? Is that why?
8: In the half gear, that's what turns the back box in and out. Okay. So maybe you're still turning both toner shafts, but you're taking the back box out of the Yeah, see that's
0: where I'm not clear on that.
1: Okay. Uh, whenever I yeah. drove my eight when I drove my single over eighteenth speed, seventeenth was my direct gear. That was my hardest pulling gear. When I'd go to sixteenth gear, that was not a good gear. You could look at your turbo boost, look at your exhaust temp, and look at the feel of the throttle and feel what the engine was doing, and it didn't pull well. You had to get down to 15th gear, which was a good pulling gear. So you have to make sure you're not running through the tail shaft of that overdrive section to pull well. Do you and agree with that, no, Matt?
8: I don't know the answer on a single overdrive. That those are single counter shafts or... I mean, I just don't have enough experience to yeah. ever known for sure. And I know that's the advantage in today's trans. They, to the best of my knowledge, nobody is building a dual counter shaft transmission anymore today. Right. None of the
0: new modern those transmissions are, are built Those that have way. become
2: outdated. Right.
0: Uh, you know?
8: so, so. Yeah. It, it. You know. It's not just single overdrive versus double overdrive. It's you know single counter shaft versus dual counter shaft and. So you can't always say that twelve speed, is, twelve gear is bad or good. It, there's multiple factors.
1: Here. Hey, uh, let me ask you a question about Minnesota. Yep. Um, I uh, drove from Colorado to Duluth, Minnesota, to pick up a Harley Davidson in my '95 Dodge Cummins pulling a trailer, and I I was on a lot of long uphill grades. Now, is that just because I was going up to Duluth or is all of Minnesota like that being you're from there?
8: Mm, yeah, it's more regional. So, yeah, northeast is hilly and southeast is very hilly. Most of the central part and western part of the state is pretty flat.
1: Okay. Because when I was doing that trip, that was in 2005. Um I said to myself, "No wonder these guys like horsepower and torque because of these long uphill grades. They do not have to be steep. You know, three or four percent—it still makes an engine work hard."
8: Yep. Yeah. It's yeah, rolling hills, not steep, long grades. Right. And it, it gets worse into Wisconsin. I mean, Wisconsin is way more rolling hills than Minnesota. Hmm. Yeah, the the reason for my call today uh, during the open, you guys were talking about employment and work history. Yeah. Uh, Mike Rowe's podcast two weeks ago, I think, I believe the title of it is something about when will AI build me a house? And I don't remember the guy's name, but he interviewed a guy, a custom home builder out of Boston, I believe. But talking about the trades, all your plumbing, heating, welders, I mean, even diesel mechanics should fall into this. Right, The number used to be for every five guys retiring, there are only two new ones coming in. Okay. The latest study is showing that's
0: up to one. Oh, no wonder why we're dealing with this. Oh,
8: yeah. And, and- we can probably go into this more on a Thursday, Kevin, but it's pretty amazing how last week or a couple weeks ago you were talking you know, just the, the business side of being self-employed versus, just, you know, just being a truck driver right. and being a, a good driver or even a mechanic, but not knowing to run a business. Right. This guy in that interview went into the same thing with all these subcontractors. Oh, I'm sure. They go out, they buy their own tools. Right. They want to, you know, do their own plumbing or whatever, and they have no idea how to get a job.
0: Correct. Right. That's the challenge. And, and here's the thing those, these people tend to be some of the best at what they do. they they just, you know, yeah. we, we need better. I, and I love the independent contractor model. I, I want more people to do this kind of stuff. We, we just have to educate people better on, God, we don't even have to talk about business sometimes. Just talk about basic money management would help a lot of these people. <laughs> You know the the good news yeah. is these aren't when you were explaining that these these aren't really complicated businesses they don't have employees they they don't have departments i mean it it it, it the the stuff we need to teach them to be successful is really basic the stuff we teach owner operators to be successful some basic money management skills a little bit of bookkeeping knowledge and build some relationships. I mean, that's like our whole model and it works. It's not that hard to teach.
1: You know, and when
8: you were talking about it a week ago or so, whenever it was, all I thought about was farmers. You were explaining how, you know, owner operators, they could be a good driver and they wanted, you know, there's these groups now, you know, fighting that we deserve a decent wage because we went out and bought a business and the farming industry is the same way. Oh yeah. You know, everybody says without farmers, you know, we're screwed. We don't have food to eat. Right. But yet they got to run a business. You know, it's not just knowing how to grow a crop. It's you got to be able to sell it. Well, you bring up an interesting
0: point with farmers. Let's think about this. I can't tell you how many times in the last 40 years I've heard that big carriers are going to put owner operators out of business. Well, it hasn't happened. We have more owner-operators than we've ever had 40 years later. So they were completely wrong (laughs) about that every time they've said it. They've said it every time something's going to change. Oh, well, that's just going to wipe out the owner-operators. Oh, this is nothing but the big carriers trying to put us out of business. If they're trying, they have failed miserably. I really don't think they're trying. I think they just run their company like everybody's far more focused on their own stuff than they are on anybody else. But there's this thought, it's been around forever, big carriers are going to put owner-operators out of business. But not be more wrong. All you have to do is look at the numbers. But But have big farms been putting small farmers out of business for a long time? And it hasn't stopped. They have been put out of business by big farms.
1: Big auto parts stores are doing the same thing to small auto parts stores, too.
8: Yeah. yeah, and the reason is economics and, and scale.
1: Right. I mean,
8: the larger you get, the more things you can buy at a wholesale price or get discounts, which improves your margin and, when you're selling. Oh,
0: and let, let, let's tie one of our, um, our topics into this. In farming, <laughs> it is absolutely a commodity. Almost everything in farming is a commodity, right? Oh. Corn. It's just a commodity. It gets used all over for a zillion different things because it's cheap. It's a commodity. Wheat, soy, all all these farm products are commodities, true commodities. So what is the only thing that matters in a commodity? Price. So the bigger you are, the more oh. you can drive price down and we want cheap food. We've done it to ourselves. We don't want to pay the farmer who actually uses regenerative techniques and is help, ha- helping the planet and people and animal, we don't want to pay for that, though.
8: That, I mean, the people that are willing to pay for it, you know, now it's gotten a lot more popular with, you know, you know, to the sell them on, online. But then it's the shipping, right? You're spending almost as much on shipping, especially like frozen meat, yeah. To as you are on the meat itself. Whereas if you were buying local, which then, you know, that the local guy needs to market. He needs to get out there and yep. in order to sell direct to the
0: consumer. And that is the hard part. That's yeah, where everybody falls apart. Our, our food system and farming is the ultimate commodity, it's all it is. You
1: know,
0: hey, Kevin, uh, I want to say something about the beef. Ah, hold on. Bentley <laughs> wants to say something about it too. Right, Bentley?
8: I have a electrical question for Leroy. Go ahead. So I have a okay. 02 Kenworth, and I have ABS lights coming on every now and then. And there's no codes or nothing like that when I had it in. I'm assuming it's a short or a ground issue. What's really weird is so this older truck, my brake lights are all controlled off of just the pressure switch they're not connected to the abs in any way when the abs light is on on the truck i have no brake lights on the trailer i have brake lights on the truck still but not the trailer um, if you got any ideas throw them out otherwise my thought is they just replacing this pressure switch and running a new wire from the pressure switch to the back of the cab and probably a new abs wire because it's somewhere in that harness there's Something either has rubbed or, and I haven't found it. I've looked many times, and checking grounds. Any other suggestions? I'm On the right track. Yeah, so you're saying
2: that that when the issue is happening, you're not getting brake lights on the truck or trailer, right?
8: I get them on the truck,
2: not the trailer. Hmm. Which, but when you don't it's it's have the even yeah,
8: then everything works just fine.
2: Yeah, I mean what you kinda of throwed out was kind of the, the first place my head was going. Um, but if if the ABS light is on, it should store inactive faults, even if they're not active, the inactive one should be there.
8: Yeah, well this was at uh TA petrol and they have insight oh. and I did call a Kenworth dealer and they said they have, you know, more sophisticated where they what they plug in they might be able to find something on the truck, but the basic, yeah, I, I, nothing showed up at all, even with the ABS light on, maybe no reading.
2: Yeah, that doesn't really quite make any sense, but uh, yeah, there, I don't have a whole lot of good direction without kind of looking at it or seeing what the faults were. Or well,
8: uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep tracking and like I say, bypassing sections of wire just to see what I come up with. Yeah, keep you posted.
1: All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Kevin? Yeah, go ahead, please. Before Bentley interrupted me, I wanted to say everybody that writes those articles about fleets going to put the owner-operator out of business, see who they are and just Google them and see, they have no experience working with owner operators. Most of them are new to the industry. Uh, They may be with a big magazine and somebody gives them a title or something to do, but they're people that really don't know what they're talking about. And if if you think about how many fleets in my 55 years have gone out of business it's about ninety percent. It's a lot. It's a
0: lot. Let me. Um,
1: and let me, yet, yet, owner. I'll, I've worked with some owner operators for, from four, the last forty-seven years, and they're still out there.
0: Let me play devil's so. advocate on this one, though. And let me start off by saying I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. But I'm going to play devil's advocate because there's another side you may not be exposed to. I can take you to lots of owner operators right now, today that are screaming. The big carriers are just trying to put us out of business. It's the big brokers and the big carriers, they they still believe that. You probably don't run into a lot of those guys, but they're out there, I promise you. Now I'll give you one other exception. To, you know, this being said by people with who don't understand it or don't have enough experience. Todd Amon. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Todd as a business person, and he understands this industry better than almost anybody I know from top to bottom. Um, Third generation, his grandfather started a trucking company. His father grew it. The three brothers grew it again and then sold it, and now they run ATBS. I mean, Todd's just just a really good businessman. I trust his knowledge and his instincts. And he says to this day, there was a time this would have been late nineties when I first met Todd and Todd, I forget what was happening back then. There was something big. I don't remember what it, which issue it was. And Todd started making the statement, this is going to put owner operators out of business. And about five or so years later, he started saying, boy, did I get that one wrong? What the hell was I thinking? He said, we've been through this so many times. Owner-operators never go away. But at one point, he was convinced that it was going to happen. Yeah, well. But he realized he was wrong, and he admitted it and said, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, They've been here forever. They're not going anywhere. Someday I'll sit
1: down and list all the common carriers we had oh. in
0: 1969 when I got into trucking. and oh. None of them are here. No, they're none. all gone. They're all gone. Gone. Yeah. Yep. I, I know a lot of them because I grew up around it. Watched, you know, all my family members right. work for those companies when they went out of business. All right. We still have calls. Indiana. We
1: got to go ahead. Ruth. Okay. The owner-operator, when you have specialty
0: freight and a specialized job, you can't beat shipping it with an owner-operator. There's the trick right there. That's what owner-operators should focus on. When when I hear an owner-operator say, well, we can't compete with those big carriers. They get big discounts, and they buy their trucks cheap, and they have their own garage, and on and on and on. And I just look at them and say, you're right, but why would you want to compete with them? Don't compete with them because you're right. You can't. You can't really compete with them on that, that allotized shrink wrap freight. Although that's not even true. Owner operators can be so efficient that they can actually compete on a lot of that freight if they want to. But I tell them, don't bother. Let, Let them deal with that crap. It, go do something the big carriers can't do. What I want to hear is the big carrier look at your operation and go, oh, hell, we can't compete with that guy. There's no way we we would go after yeah. that freight. That's what we should be turning it around to. Hey Yeah. Uh my
1: cell phone just rang and was one of your old neighbors from Ohio, St. Clairsville, Ohio. Look at that. Huh. <laughs> I just turned it off. I'll call back oh, there after you go. the show. So if, right. it's a, if it's an owner operator, that happens to have my new cell phone and you're calling me.
0: I'll call you <laughs>
1: after we're finished here.
0: There you go. We are going to get to some calls are piling up again. Let's go to Wyoming. Scott, welcome.
6: Hello. I have a
4: uh, 2012 Columbia glider with a, the 127 Detroit, it's a glider. I already said that. Uh, I just recently came off the road and started doing local into gravel pits five, six times a day. I had a fleet air filter in it, and it was 20% plugged when I started, 90% plugged after three days. So I put a paper filter in, and after a week, it's already plugged is there any kind of pre-filter i can put on to help keep some of this dust out
0: um one years ago years ago
1: i was just Uh, gonna say before
0: we talk about the solution have you done any oil sampling yes i i i'm a long-time listener i've got everything
4: pittsburgh sells and okay so uh, what what kind of numbers are you seeing
0: at on silicon at uh like twenty five thousand miles or whenever you're sampling
4: well i i just started this job three weeks ago and i changed the oil right before i started so i don't have a a sample yet i'm I'm curious to see how that stuff changes
0: yeah there's two issues here there's one (laughs) uh and there's not going to be a whole lot we can do about this in an environment like this. We're not going to be able to keep good airflow on this truck. There's just too much dirt in this environment. We have to protect the engine first. That's more important than really good airflow. But I, it'd be interesting to see some of the numbers on silicon. And we, what we want to do in an operation like this, honestly, we want to push your silicon numbers right to 10 and then do something, whether it's clean the filter or change it but we need to know when when that's going to occur. Well, I,
4: after uh, four or five days, I start blowing so much black smoke that
1: that's ah, one that's of the ways I know sign. that
4: my filters... Yikes. Yeah.
1: That's fast. When you cow. do that, you're putting, a, you're putting a tremendous amount of pressure on the thrust washer in the turbocharger. Yeah. You're making... That compressor wheel Like a propeller Trying to go through water And it's going to ruin your turbo But You know On the cab overs We used to have those scoops up the back Pete what was the name of that scoop And it had the fan inside And it took a lot of the dirt out And I used them on bulldozers Turbo 2 was one But what was the one we used on the cab over Turbo 2 I was on the bulldozers
3: I remember using them and they worked very well, but I do not remember the name. And we can
1: still get them. I know they're still made, but then in a Columbia, the air filters under the hood. Um, There is also a guy and I see him at Louisville, like for the Vortox air filters on the outside, he has a screen, a fine mesh piece that goes around where the air comes in. But on a, on a, external air filter, but I don't know on a Columbia. Um, Do you have an air restriction gauge in your truck? No, it's not and how
3: high it's going to it work. Does it go up to work. 20 or 25? It doesn't work. Okay. You might want to get that fixed. Yeah. That's, that's nice to have, but it, it seems unusual that you're getting, even in a dirty environment, plugging a filter that quickly.
0: Yeah, a couple. I've never heard well, of that. Well, when they, when well, they load... Have.
4: There's so much dust. I, and I finally got to where I shut the engine off while they're loading me because when they get done loading me, I've got a sixteenth of an inch of dust on everything.
0: Hey, let me ask you this. Let, let me ask you this. Uh, the other contract, I, I'm assuming you're coming in contact with other people that own trucks that are doing this. Have you come across any solution? What's everybody doing?
4: No, all they they, they they've got a a K&N filter, and they, they wash it out every few weeks, and that's all they're doing.
0: I, you know, I would be very interested to see somebody's oil sample with a K&N. I think that might be a big, big mistake in this operation. K&Ns aren't even oiled. I, that,
4: yeah, and that's why I, I'm asking you guys, because I really like the fleet air filter, but I just I can't be... Oiling that thing up every weekend.
0: No, it's a lot of work. I mean, uh, even, I you know, have, I, if I were you, I would have three. I was just complete air filters, <laughs> and I, I would have that. somebody. Yeah.
1: If, okay, if, if you don't want to wash them, uh, pay somebody to do it and have them oiled and change it once a week, um, or talk to the company and see if they can get some tanker trucks and spray that area, and I'm surprised the EPA isn't doing something about it. Those overhead spray systems that they make uh, that we tried to inject into an engine to run uh, 40 to 60 percent water versus diesel, uh, they're made on Gene Autry Drive in Palm Springs, California, but they can put them around the fences and blow the mist through the air and keeps the dust down. It's the same thing you see on the football teams that are playing in the Southwest, those overhead spray systems, but something should be done because that's not a very healthy atmosphere. That's also in your lungs, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, I... All the employees that are there, those guys working, those front-end loaders, that's horrible.
0: If this is enough dirt in the air to clog a filter in three or four days, that is a horrible environment. Yeah. I'm with Bruce. I, I, I think the best protection here is multiple sets of fleet air filters, and you swap a new one out every week. I I,
1: yeah, I I wouldn't do that job, uh, what, what you're doing. I wouldn't put myself or my equipment into that atmosphere. Where is this place anyway?
4: Uh, Harriman in Wyoming.
1: Oh, in Wyoming.
4: So, yeah, the granite pit.
0: Oof. Yeah, I bet it could get pretty nasty. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Head I right would... On I, I would have multiple multiple wraps for the fleet air filter, and I would be probably oil sampling every 20,000 miles. Okay, Yeah, I've got
4: about 5,000 miles since I changed the oil, and I I am curious to see what happens. Here's
0: one of the things you have to be careful in an environment like that. You get a breach in that intake system early on after you maybe just threw a new filter in and something went wrong and you get a breach. Yeah. And, you know, 20,000 miles to an oil sample, you could wipe out cylinders. Yeah,
4: well, and that's one of the reasons why now when I when they're dumping into my
0: trailer, I, I shut the engine off. That's a good as soon idea. As they're done, i start up and drive away. Yeah. Yeah, that's a challenging That's hoping a little bit. You're yeah.
1: going to have that dust in your side, your gauges. It's like the line, people that haul line. I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, it just, you can't beat that. Oh, uh, that's challenging. Years ago, I had a Chevy Suburban, and I put a nice Zuzu diesel in it. I was doing strip mine work, and every night I had to, Clean out the inside of that suburban, and then I hey. bought an old Chevy pickup truck to take inside those strip mines.
0: Bruce, is that and the I one you built in dad. Ravenna?
1: Yeah, yeah, I that's right. So. I that's that. the one. That's the one where we got the firewall and and we got the engine and transmission set in in Ravenna, and then I brought it home. Could uh, what size it's was it's, that uh, Isuzu? Three sixty cubic inch. Five point seven, sixty-five, five.
0: Five nine. It'd probably
1: five point nine. A... Then I turboed it. It'd probably so it be was a... normally aspirated, and I. Oh, did you really? Interesting. Yeah, I took it for one ride. I said, "Oh boy, did I just waste <laughs> a lot of time?" So then I, I called Air Research in Los Angeles, and they wouldn't talk to me. And then I realized they were a pain in the ass. And to this day, I I try not to do business with Air Research. And I came up with my own specs on a turbo and put the turbo on and found out how to turn the pump up and had it make an eighteen pound of boost and nice. And it
0: was a respectable uh, machine. Could, yeah. do, you, do you think I could squeeze that into my FJ? I don't know
1: if I have enough room up there. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Either. Plus, it was nine hundred pounds. It was nine hundred oh. pounds. So yeah, and that was a half ton suburban, and. Um, I lost a ball joint once. fixed that. And then the ex wife demolished it. It wasn't <laughs> body wise, but venting <laughs> wise on black ice down in Woodsville. Is it, am I saying it right? Woodsville, Virginia. And God, my daughter was on a porta potty in the back, and I was holding her, and we're spinning circles and pulling a. Trailer and oh, it was a mess. And um, John Walco and I were laying underneath at one time. And John said, Look, there's only seven bolts on each side that hold this front cross member that holds all the suspension. We went to the junkyard and got one out of a three quarter ton, unbolted the half ton, put the three quarter ton one up, and never had a problem after that.
0: There you go. All right. We got to move along. We got we to keep knocking out calls here because they keep <laughs> piling up on us. Let's, uh, let's go to Mississippi. Mike, welcome.
6: Hey, good morning, Kevin and Bruce. This is Mike with the big house.
0: There you go. Good hey,
1: I guess it's the guy with the 228 gears.
6: Yes, that's correct. And the F-22 on the side with the national anthem. Yeah, it was nice. that's what it is. I was yeah. a flag on it,
5: Nice. It mm-hmm.
6: got, got, got got One Nation Under God on there. Love it.
1: Is that dark yeah. truck dark blue?
6: Yes, it is. Yep.
1: Okay.
6: Yeah. And, boy, I, I, I sure like these 228s. So I changed two things. I'm not for sure what uh, why I get a couple tenths better, because I also lowered my RPM 140. So instead of running 1,400 RPM in 13th, now I'm running about 1,260 in 11th at 65 miles an hour. So I didn't make two changes. I can't testify on any improvements
0: yeah you know that okay. that's always been challenging for me you want to prove each thing individually and and then you know there's also the theory that yeah you know, look if we've proven some of this stuff enough times maybe you don't have to reprove it again let's just get it on there because we know it works but that's always kind of a challenge what how much work do you want to put into verifying yeah and it sure
6: is one of the things i like so much is just running the engine at 140 rpms less so much quieter in the truck, peaceful. I can actually hear the turbo whistling now.
7: Oh, nice! And it's Good.
6: I so so my so my future trucks. I'm gonna always just go with the tall gear ratio, just because I like how much quieter it is, and I could always downshift to tenth. Um, you know, so, so, so now when I run about
7: 57
6: miles an hour in tenth, that's 1,300 rpm, and I, I, do, I do realize I'm going straight through the main main box. And I'm splitting down on the rear section, but I don't think I'm losing too much efficiency like that. Got it. So and, and it, uh,
1: what's so your it, wheelbase on that truck with a hundred and eighty inch bunk?
6: Uh three fifty two to the center of the drives. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> it it does not flip U-turns. If you want to yeah, make a I'll turn, bet. you better plan ahead. I'll bet. <laughs> so. so but, but what I did for that is I got a short trailer. I got a 48-foot flatbed and, and with the spread axle, and I got a switch in the cab. So when I come up to my turn, I flick the switch, and it raises the back axle on the trailer.
0: Oh, nice so short turning, So it helps turning. me up the yeah. Uber and everything. And right. Yeah, so
6: people would say, man, you really get around good at that thing. It's, well, I got a short trailer. And, 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 and then when and I straighten out, I flick the switch and set it back down.
0: And you essentially I make that trailer. I thought you had a drop. A lot shorter when you lift that back axle.
6: Yeah, it does make a lot shorter. Yeah, shorten it a lot. Uh, no, right. Bruce, I, I I have a flat.
0: I thought you no, had
1: right. a drop deck. I, okay.
6: Yeah, hmm. you know the the drop deck business has been the you know it 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 used to be popular, but so many people have gotten into it, they just beat the market down, and they're heavier, and they cost more. I just don't
0: find it worth the extra expense of having a drop deck with how many people have them. You know, that's the way you just described that is just good business. You looked at the factors, you thought about it, and you made a decision that most people don't make. Very few people want to go back to a shorter trailer. They just think, well, no, more space, more money. Um, That was just that's just good business.
6: And, And also, you know, you look at almost all the step decks are hauling flatbed freight, right. and also my, uh, you know, you know, my empty weight is forty five thousand. And if I had a step deck trailer, you know, they're a little bit heavier, so it'd be more of a disadvantage to me.
0: Right. And mm-hmm.
6: extra weight, I'm, ha- um, yeah, extra weight, I'm hauling all the time.
0: Yep. Now this makes sense.
6: <clears throat> and Kevin, uh, Kevin, you get a lot of people calling into you about lift axles. So, so this is how my lift axle works. You know, I said, I flip the switch in the cab, I. I put in one of them control valves that dump trucks use, you know, to, to raise one of their tag axles. Okay. I got that rigged up on my trailer. I put the level ride controller up on front. And, and if the if it's too heavy, the, the back axle comes up, but it just smashes the front axle down. It just, like, pushes the air back out oh, of yeah. the bags. Right. It just won't, it just not, it's not that it's not raising it. It just smashes the other axle down.
1: Right. And, and tell us about the uh, the vehicle you haul. I have a brain pig. Uh. Oh, yeah, my
6: 1964 Banks Volkswagen Doom buggy. That rides right on the trailer. Oh, There you go. Just, so the dune buggy, so I, I used to be an mm. oil-filled welder, but I needed an easier job. So I started trucking about six years ago. And so so I made it all myself. It's like a tow truck. I jackknife the truck, the contraption slides out and then tilts down and winches the buggy out on the ground. Wow. And then, and and so the buggy's 11 feet long. It's all covered up. You can't see it at all. And it takes up six feet of trailer space. And with me having such a real long fifth wheel slide, I I got my fifth wheel slid way back. And so it hangs way over the front. So I got five feet of overhang off the front. So
0: is this vehicle facing forward? Yes, it is. Oh, but it only takes up six feet because of the overhang. Because of the overhang, that's correct. Yeah, okay. I, I hang way over the yeah. front. Okay, very cool.
1: Yeah. And- and what about this yeah. Dodge pickup that you built?
0: The chassis, oh, the man. engine. Hey, what year is that wait, Dodge? But before you get to that, I got, I have something else. This is a very, very cool setup. You actually get paid to drive around the country doing this.
6: Well, I, I've I've called in before, and I say me and my wife, we, we wait for the hot load. So while I'm waiting for the hot load, I like to go run around. I like yeah, to do any little back road. Yeah, like, like like Kevin, just in your area, we were down in Los Angeles. We got a call for in uh, possibly tuition. Is that how you say that? It's right below Portland?
0: Uh, oh, Tualatin.
6: It's Right below Portland. Tuwaltin. Tuwaltin. Yeah. So so we got a call that a a hospital on the East Coast. Let me turn that down. A hospital on the East coast, air conditioning part broke down. So, so we were in Los, Los Angeles. We deadheaded all the way up there, load up this, this air conditioning part and, and rushed it all the way across the country. So we get a lot of light loads and I, and I got that back axle up all the time on my trailer.
0: Nice. Nice. I should have called, I should have called you when I I needed that charger cooler delivered from uh, Oregon to Pennsylvania.
6: Yeah, go right by your place. Yeah. And uh, I, I try not to stop because my wife spends way too much money at your store, man. Well, she, then you should, got, you, guys like right. you should stop more. Come on. You should stop more. And you do have enough room for me to get turned around. I could back in by the railroad tracks and get turned around.
0: Oh, nice. You know, I, I tell people all the time, when, when you first pull in, it looks a little like, you know, it might be. It's not that tight. There, there's a lot. And if you can do it, then nobody else better complain about it. And
6: with my old yellow Dodge Power Wagon that I built, I built this truck like 15 years ago, and this is how I learned all about gear ratios. This truck had a wide block 360. It was a Dodge Power Wagon W300 with the wide block 360, and the engine blew up. So I found a DT366 International engine, and I put it in there with a the five-speed direct transmission. And it had 488 gears. I got this thing on the road. It only go like 42 miles an hour wide
0: open. And I'm like, what? So that's when I learned about gear ratios. I had a similar experience in high school. I bought an old 1959 Ford pickup that somebody had put on a four-wheel drive chassis. I don't even remember where the chassis came from, but they put this. And it was, it was rough. But... I was in high school and it was a very, very cool truck and I was going to restore it cause I knew how to paint. And, um, it turned out to be way, way too big of a job. I mean, there was nothing left of the floorboards and, um, but that truck was the same way. Somebody had geared that thing like 42 miles an hour and it was screaming so loud. You couldn't hear yourself think.
6: Yeah. And so after that, I, the, the engine was gutless anyways. I, I realized that even with the low gear ratio, I put a ninety three Dodge Cummins in it with uh, the Eaton Fuller six ten, the six hundred pounds of torque ten speed in it. And I put a divorce transfer case and a low direct and high brownie box in it with five thirty six gears. And, and and I and I ran this for like fifteen years. Wow. So when I started listening to you guys talk about double double overdrive efficiency, I ended up taking all that all that out, and now I run four tin gears. So I, I leave the brownie box in direct. So I'm just oh, running one overdrive transmission.
1: That's quite a and setup. This is a you pickup got. truck. Yeah. It's a pickup truck. Old, old Dodge. Yeah. What year is that Dodge? Did you say 71? 68.
6: 68. Yeah, and it's and pink. highway caution yellow. It's the same color as a yellow stripe in the road, but it has gloss on it.
1: Oh, yeah. And so- what about this old Army equipment, this old bulldozer that you bought and you rebuilt the engine and you were pushing dirt? Were you using that for commercial use?
6: Uh, no, I was using that for side jobs and uh, having some fun with it Till California started cracking down so much on everything that I just uh, – I ended up selling it. Yeah, I sold it. I kept my little D4 bulldozer and uh, my 1936 R5 Crane. I got a military ordnance crawler crane that is like brand new. That was parked somewhere, and I picked up $5,000. You are a total gearhead. I am. You know, I, if people say, Oh, how you forward all this? It's like, well, I don't have any kids. I wasn't blessed with any kids. So, uh, you know, I spend all my money on out there working on stuff.
1: There you go. And and this barn that you work out of, the pictures you sent me, it's behind your house and you were raised on that property. Yes, sir. Yep. Still live there. Is it a farm?
6: Yeah, it was it's twenty acres of farmland, and our, our water well went dry, so we never redrilled it, It was just wasn't profitable. You know, it took me all months to make two thousand dollars growing hay, and I could go out and haul a hot load and, and make that money. So, I, I let I let that the farming property go. It just all weeds now.
1: And then. I had him send me a picture of he and his wife in the truck, and he had a suit and a white shirt and a tie on, and his wife was dressed up looking like they were going to the Queen's Ball.
6: <laughs> well, my sister's an attorney, and when she has a function, I'm required to dress up. <laughs> <laughs> so hey,
1: I never get pictures gotta, like that. <laughs>
6: there you go. Hey, hey, so, hey. Uh, and, and, Go ahead. Hey, Kevin, one quick question sure. for you. How you feel about chewing gum? Just Wrigley's, regular old just chewing gum. There is a Throw bunch out. of crap on the ingredients, it but it helps.
0: Throw it away. It's not the ingredients I'm worried about. But it helps keep me from. Helps keep you from what? What is it, then?
6: Well, it helps keep me from
0: snacking on stuff. I could just chew on a piece of gum well, for a while. What, well, we'd have to look at why you want to snack so often. Boredom. Uh, yeah, then you can, that's easy to overcome. I mean, if you're eating the right foods, you shouldn't be hungry all the time. You shouldn't be really snacking. Here's the problem. Chewing gum is not a natural thing. And when our body senses chewing, it thinks we're eating something. It starts the digestive process, and then there's nothing there. It's just. It's just not a good idea. Okay. All right. You know, when I'm at home
6: working on a project, I could go a long time without eating, but sitting in a truck, I just got too much energy. I start going bonkers.
0: Yeah, It'd be something to do. You'd be better off with things like uh, some nuts and seeds, some cheese, some olives, some high fat snacks that will be much more satisfying. I mean, that's the other thing. You're, you're, you're chewing, but you're not swallowing. You're not getting nutrition. You're not, there's nothing there to digest. It's just not a natural thing. Okay,
6: I copy that. Got your beef sticks right here. I'll try to work on them more. There you go. Eat lots so of beef. So, Kevin, sticks. you're
1: saying when you're when you're starting the digestion process, so now is
0: the stomach releasing acids? Yes. Yep. And there's no food for it. Yep. Interesting. That's exactly what's happening when you start chewing. That starts the digestion process. So we want to chew and swallow. It's all. It's another reason why we don't like smoothies. This whole thing that smoothies are so healthy, that's garbage. That's bullshit. It, it's, that, that's not natural. It's not normal. Hunter-gatherers why, did, why didn't have ninja blenders. Natrified? Well, hunter-gatherers did not have ninja blenders. We never threw a bunch of stuff in a blender and then drank it. Stuff we probably should be eating, not drinking. berries. You know, if we're going to have some fruit, it, it's just not a good, it's not a good thing. It's not natural.
1: Well, no, you're killing my breakfast now. Uh, yeah. So this cachava, are you familiar with cachava protein powders?
0: Throw it away. Nobody needs a protein powder. There's, It's so easy to get good, high quality protein, more than we need. Eggs, beef, all the meat. I mean, we can get so much good quality whole protein in our diet. I have no idea why people want to spend their money on protein powders. Wow. Eat a steak for breakfast. <laughs>
1: so much easier to put that frozen fruit in blender with a scoop of protein powder. And Bruce, Bruce you, go.
0: you know in life when you say it's easier, it's not always a good thing, though. Yeah I know. Yeah, all right. Yeah, we gotta gotta knock out a couple more calls here before we gotta wrap this up for today. Let's go to Colorado, Pat. Welcome. Morning guys.
9: Hey, uh, I got a question. You know, we're always trying to get these longer legged rear end, all this stuff. And I've got a I've got a customer that every time he buys a new truck, we get about forty thousand miles on it, and then we tune it, we get him on the catalyst right away, and and all that and he went to get this last truck ordered and they will not the the highest rear end they'll put in that peterbilt was uh 308 well that gets some parasitic drag in 17th and 18th gear. so if we're talking about this these engineers have to know this how come how come guys that are spending 230 some thousand dollars on a brand new truck are running into a brick
7: wall
1: That's the attitude of the engineers at Packard, and uh, Bruce Cook there should know this because we've met with him. He's a personal friend and an ex-race car tech with John Walco, and somebody needs to get through to the people at Packard that we need to get to the 228s, but not I just had another guy order a new Packard, and they did put 228s in it, and I was wondering how he got that through.
9: Well, I'm wondering, did he get an automatic transmission? Because it seems like that that's the only way they'll do it. They don't trust the guy that sits his ass in, a, in the left-hand seat, and it's just absolutely <laughs> aggravating. Uh, it, it we, is.
0: we dealt with this on both um, signature gliders. We we wanted them to build a glider with certain specs, and they just wouldn't do it. We went back and forth. Will Kenworth do it? No, will Peterbilt do it? I, back and forth. Um, I, you know, you can offer to sign waivers. You can, it just doesn't matter when they say no, they say no, and they won't build it that way.
7: They'll tell so you why do you want to do is take what they should do is take
9: 10 grand off the price of the truck. So as soon as you get it out of the shop, you can take it home and drop some decent rear ends in the son of a bitch. So you can get decent fuel mileage right out of the box. If
0: we were going to do another signature glider project, we were going to look into buying a true glider, not a rolling glider. True gliders were, didn't have differentials, no rear ends. It was just, a, you know, cabin frame. Right. Um, and then right. all the gliders we were building were what they called rolling gliders. But at at some point, we may have, have tried to go around that and just started buying true gliders and then building the rear ends and suspension the way we wanted them.
9: And, and again, they're doing it in these automatic trucks, you know, and I don't know about Packard because, I mean, the guys that I tune for are bull haulers and flatbedders and grain haulers and and that kind of stuff, you know, high altitude stuff out here in Cheyenne. So, I mean, and, and everybody's happy with it. The problem we're having is this damn rear end; it's it stuck at a three hundred eight when, when really and truly, that guy should be at like a two forty six, uh, rough and tough. Two twenty eight, two forty six, whatever in that in that realm, and we just can't get there without spending a bunch of money on a brand new truck, and it's just aggravating. I know. So, I are that. they are are they with these with these automatics? Bruce is is Packard doing the same thing with the automatic transmissions as what? Volvo's doing uh, with their rear ends and that kind of that kind of show. I don't know. Is, is Freightliner doing the same thing? I have no idea.
0: Now I will say we've talked about this a lot. Volvo now has the the spec. Um, that you just walk in and order. You you just ask for it. And and it is this spec with these high ratios. And and honestly, I have a feeling there's still, no, I know, I don't have a feeling. There's still a bunch of their sales guys that look at that and go, what the hell is this? They just don't get it.
1: So that... To the other listeners, this is Patrick Anderson from Cheyenne. And last week, when the guy called in and said they did the tune on his 6NZ Cat, and they started like at four o'clock in the afternoon, or uh, anyway, our JR, our electrical engineer that does the tunes after hours, he was on it till what eleven o'clock at night or something, Eastern time.
9: Yeah, yeah, so it was like five. It was like five hours, and we had the whole dash out of the truck and my in my driveway you know because i try to do the tunes in front of the house that's where i get my best wi-fi and and so we just pull it up on a cement pad in front of the house and 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 we do it right there usually takes somewhere between 20 and 20 minutes and an hour and 15 rough and tough it just depends on what kind of problems jr runs into if he runs into any and here we're four or five hours into this thing and the dashboard's totally out of this truck and, <laughs> and you know it's 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 due diligence at that point because i know nothing i'm a, I'm a kenworth guy i'm a pack car guy i really don't know anything about these freight liners and they got stuff in different spots and we had that whole passenger side of the dash dashboard out trying to figure out Because there were so many things inside that truck that were talking back and forth to each other. And Leroy can testify to this, too. You got so much noise and so much BS going between all these different systems in the truck that sometimes they can't, the guys can't get through to the ECM on the engine because there's so much background noise and and it's aggravation at at the highest, I'll guarantee you. But uh, you, due diligence, say, due diligence, and frozen feet will make your ass move a little <laughs> bit faster and get the tune in the truck. I'll guarantee it. So.
1: <laughs> there you go. Uh, and by the way, when you say noise, you're talking about electronic noise interference, not that. That that,
9: that is correct, Bruce. And it's and right. it's just so many systems talking to it, talking through the channels in the tractor itself, and it's just it's just mm-hmm. aggravating.
1: You know, uh, I, two of my chiropractors are applied kinesiologists, and they say you don't want to be in front of that type of noise day and night. They say don't put your cell phone in your chest pocket or your Gross. fob or your remote control to open the door because anything that sends that signal And here, you're sitting in front of all that, and people at a desk have, are surrounded by computers. Go ahead, Kevin. I,
0: I was just going to say, um, I just finished up two years on researching stress. So I can help people with that. Um, the new project I started, and I'm, I'm working on it kind of slow because I just need a break from all this research and testing. Uh, but the next project like that I'm tackling is exactly what you're talking about, EMFs, electromagnetic frequencies that are really damaging our health. Yeah. Even a lot of fluorescent lights in offices. Uh, uh, it's everywhere. It, it, we're surrounded yeah. by this this energy that is not good for us. It's affecting ourselves. It's uh, it's really bad. And, and my goal is you almost can't get away from it. Um, but there are lots and lots of ways to minimize it and protect against it. So my project is... Yeah figure out the best products and methods and techniques to, you know, live in a modern world, but protect ourselves from this as much as we can.
1: And, you know, coveralls. Coveralls are wonderful things when you're
0: driving a truck because you don't have the,
1: the uh, belt cutting into your waist and they have those pockets right in front of you. But don't put your phone there. Don't put your key fob there. Don't put anything you know, like we, that close to your heart, and don't don't put your wallet in your hip pocket and sit on it either.
0: You know we've we've talked about uh, we were talking earlier about the population, people not having as many children. Well, we deal with it all the time. Some people can't have children. They're struggling. Young, what you would think young, healthy people are having much, much more trouble getting pregnant. Part of it is just metabolic health. I mean, just we're just unhealthy because of our diet. That's a big part of it. But another part of it is people walking around with their cell phones in their pocket. It's Look what's there. I mean, you are affecting your sex organs with carrying these things around. Your front pocket, your back pocket, doesn't matter. I mean, it's the worst place in the world to carry a phone and have all these EMFs. And think about your phone. Your phone most of the time is receiving four different signals it's got a cell phone signal it's receiving you probably have bluetooth on so that's activated you probably have wi-fi on so that's activated and it has gps receivers in it those are four completely different types of electronic signals you stick it in your pocket
1: where the hell are we supposed to put it
0: you don't carry it I, my, I don't carry my phone around if I don't have to. And if I do, it goes in my backpack. That's why you don't answer. That's why I can't call. That's you're why I right. can't that's call. That's why you people, can't get a hold People of call me.
1: me and say, call Kevin. I said he won't answer his phone.
0: I, that's because I don't carry it with me for that reason.
1: Well, you, so, When you're out in your garden, you should have a stand at the end of the row, and you should have it, and have it so that when you rings it, you can run over and pick it up.
0: Bruce, I go in the garden, so I'm not dealing with all that kind of stuff. That's my whole point about being out there. I don't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah. If you think it's bad now, wait, if, if we, I mean, I, I may know today or within the next couple of days, we, we, we may be buying a, basically a farm. We'll buy it back East so we can see. Uh, no, it's, it's out here. It's in the national forest. God. Uh, it's stunning. I don't even want to talk about it yet. All right, we got to get to another call anyway. we got one more call to wrap this up today. Brent, you get the final word.
5: I feel lucky. How about that?
0: There you go. Well,
5: I'm having problems. And um, I have a 2015 ISX 15, 525 CM, 2350. And my truck is not priming when you cycle the key like it's supposed to after you do your service on it and change your fuel filters and your water separator, um, the book says after you change your water separator and fuel filter, uh, <clears throat> put everything on back nice and tight and cycle the key, you know, five, five to six times. And it should just fill the bowl up and fill, fill, fill the system up with fuel and off you go. Well, I'm not the most mechanically inclined guy, and it was not working for me. It just wasn't doing it.
1: Um, Are you pre-filling the filters?
5: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I gotta,
1: I gotta ask you my favorite question. I haven't asked it for three hours. Are you running the Maximally Catalyst? Yes, sir, Bruce. You guys Dang. got me Go hooked ahead.
5: on that. Uh, I, I, I knew I was gonna run that before I bought the truck.
1: Okay. All right. So. And you change the filters and you're filling them up with fuel. Yes. I think it's going to be a Leroy question.
5: Well, is your lift I, pump
2: turning
1: on?
5: Yeah, the lift pump. You can hear it working. And uh, somebody said, "Oh, well, you need a new you need a new housing for the water separator." They said, "Oh, there's an the O ring in there that goes bad, like a tiny one." And so I put, so I went and I replaced the water and fuel filter housing this weekend and the mechanics put on the brand new one and he ended up I he ended up having to blow air through the fuel tank to get the truck to prime I'm just I've never seen that done before I never even heard of that there's a little so yeah yeah
1: if you can't fix this one I'd put a fast system on it
2: While the lift pump's running, you should be able to to press one of the copy checks on the fuel filter housing, or um,
5: that's how I do it. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's how I do
5: it.
2: If if your lift pumps working, fuel should come out.
5: It does come out, and and then and then that's how I get the truck to prime, and and then the water separator will fill up super fast. But I get fuel all over me every time I do that. That's why calling you guys. I don't like smelling like fuel on a Sunday night. I just don't like it. Yeah,
2: I think there's some sort of return valve. I mean, there's there's a lot of that goes on in there. I don't know the exact fuel schematic off the top of my head, but I can get that to you, and then we can figure out which check valve that is or which valve it is, and that's probably what's well, not allowing the fuel to drain back and actually prime the system, because like you said, it should do it on its own. You shouldn't have to play with the coffee check to get it to do that.
5: Okay, yeah. I, uh, yeah, okay. Do you want me to just call the shop later, uh, tomorrow or something? Or do you
2: want me yeah, to you you? Yeah, shoot me an email, leroy at pittsburghpower.com, and uh, I'll send you back that schematic and we'll figure out which one, uh, which valve it is. I don't know what it is I, off the top of my head. That's not a pretty frequent issue.
5: Okay. Um. How do you spell Leroy?
0: L E R O Y.
5: <laughs> I figured that. I just wanted to be sure. So,
0: Right. Yep. All right. Okay. Thank you, gentlemen. You're welcome. That's our final call. Hey, Bruce, do we want to close with a little bit of politics
1: yeah i yeah. i wanted to say something uh, donald trump was telling people when he was president to go into the building trades and some people say oh i don't like the way he talks to people everything the guy said was true and he's telling people become plumbers become electricians become brick and block layers and masonry guys and carpenters because we agree. need that
0: i agree now, you want to find out how, or you want to talk about how uh, scary our government is becoming? Go ahead. I just read something from Tucker Carlson. Did you ever watch him on Fox?
1: Oh, I watch him all the time. That was a big mistake Fox did by letting him go. He spoke the truth about the Dominion voting machines. I, about a lot of things.
0: So here, here's what just happened to him. He's doing his own thing now. He's on Twitter. He He's getting huge views, and but he just found out he was getting ready to do an interview with putin and he didn't tell anybody didn't tell his wife didn't tell anybody about it there was one person he was texting to try to arrange this and he got a call from washington dc and they said are you going to be in washington anytime soon and he said yeah i'm going to be there this week and why and he said we want to talk to you about this interview with putin and he said how the hell do you know about that turns out and they admitted it The NSA hacked into his text account and found it. Yeah. That is so wrong. I go by that place four
1: times a month, by the way, on Route 32 in Maryland.
0: That is just so wrong. That's just scary.
1: It sure
0: is. Ah. It's just like... What is it if
1: you Google something and you want to buy something, all of a sudden you start getting emails about it?
0: Yeah, there, there's, uh, you know, there's just so much. There, there's, uh, yeah, I don't want to get too deep into it because we could go on all day, but I, I just read that and that's pretty yeah. damn shocking. That emails, text messages, they're all recorded. Yeah, scary stuff. All it's right, Hey, today was a great show. I really enjoyed it. There's a lot of good stuff today. We were all over yeah. the board. I mm-hmm. think we solved a lot that's of problems. Yeah. yeah.
1: I'm glad Mike McWilliams called in. Yeah. You know, the guy that says, I'm going to change my rear ends in the future. Mike McWilliams, when we talk about it, he does it the next week. <laughs> well, that's I mean, the future. It's just, it's... <laughs> yeah, <I> mean... <laughs> I can uh, talk to him about something on one on Monday, and by Thursday or Friday, it's done. There I mean, you go. it's just
0: it's just shocking how fast this guy there does it. stuff. Hey, get her done. That's right. <laughs> yeah, is, get her done. All right, we're gonna wrap it up tomorrow. Bruce, are you? I know you. You are. A, you shop a lot in our store now. Have you got our dental products yet? No. What is it? Oh, you gotta try it. Just get the. It's called a. It's called I, a I, dental I, detox kit. Well, I've been on anti-fluoride toothpaste for about 25 years, uh, so it's hard to find. Oh, there's none of that stuff in this. I'll tell you what, actually, tomorrow <laughs> we're announcing a new product, but what we have now in that kit are tooth powders. They're not paste, they're a powder. One's charcoal, uh, the other one's remineralizing. There, There is nothing in there. These are super clean, no fluoride, no crap, no nothing. <laughs> Um, here's something we learned. No, actually black charcoal. Well, will when you're doing it, yeah, it's kind of nasty, but, um, it doesn't taste bad. It tastes really good. They've got some nice essential oils in there. Um, here's something we learned that just blew me away. The woman who developed this whole system, she's got multiple products. There's the tooth powders. There's some oils that are really good for doing oil pulling. Here's the interesting thing. Did you know, your body can heal cavities? Do not know that. Absolutely. Not even questioned. It's absolute true. Here's what has to happen. In mm-hmm. order for your mouth to be able to heal that, it heals a cavity just like it heals a bone. We heal bones, right? We put two, a broken bone back together, it heals itself. Yep. Teeth are just like bones. Yep. The reason our teeth don't heal themselves is is because our diet has screwed up the pH and the bacteria in our mouth so bad. That's why it, it doesn't work anymore. Uh-huh. When you use this system uh-huh. and you get the pH and the the uh, bacteria correct in your mouth, it, your mouth will actually start healing cavities. Wow. Yeah.
1: Hey, uh, years ago, years ago, and I don't even know if Pete remembers, this guy had a motor home. It was a gas job, I think a 460 Ford and uh, he was an interesting guy, and he had, he recycled tin. And he was from Western Pennsylvania, and I think he was actually, you know, his heritage was from India. I said, what do you do with that tin? he said, well, we extract fluoride out of it and oh. goes to the toothpaste manufacturers. Oh. I thought, I have an old rusty tin. So I asked my chiropractor, who was a applied kinesiologist, who was a vegan at the time, who actually changed the genetics in his family because they were half Italian and everyone was dying of heart attacks by age 48. And this guy's a super healthy 76-year-old now. So I don't believe in when people say, well, I'm going to have this because of genetics. No, you can change that. But uh, he told me years ago, do not use fluoride. When he goes to the dentist, he won't even take a shot of Novocaine. He endures the pain. Lisa does that.
0: My wife does that. She won't. She uh, almost never takes Novocaine. And I've seen her go through some pretty brutal processes with no Novocaine. God, yeah, I know. Wow, I know. Well, you, when
1: you figure when you have Novocaine, you're putting that num, numbing sen- sensation just like Botox yeah. in your body, which is what, 76% water? And you think this chemical is going to stay in <laughs> that muscle to release, <laughs> no. to get rid of that wrinkle in your face? No, it's traveling Everywhere. through your body, and it's numbing your organs. The best way to get rid of it anytime. I uh, take something, whether it's a sleep or something. Next morning, I just really fill my body with a, a lot of water to try to wash yeah, it out. good idea. And I do the same thing if I come from the dentist and I haven't got shot up with Novocaine. I'll drink a lot of
0: water. Excellent. All right. So tomorrow <laughs> we have Trina Felberon. She's the CEO and founder of Primal Life Organics that make all this. She wasn't a dentist either. She was a nurse. She figured this, all this out not being a dentist. And it's an incredible system. We've had it in the store for several months now and our feedback has been just over the top. So, uh, we have her back on again tomorrow. We'll be talking about this stuff. We'll be answering questions and we'll be launching a new product. I'm not going to tell anybody what it is. You'll find out tomorrow. Uh, so that's what we've got going on. We'll see you back here next week for the power hour. Thanks to the team from Pittsburgh power and, uh, Bruce, have a great rest of your week. Thank you. All right. And everyone. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.